Welcome to the Endless Pursuit Podcast. Where we talk all things hunting and the great outdoors. And here's your hosts, Dodge, Matt and Kyle. Welcome to episode one of the Endless Pursuit podcast, Australian Hunting Journeys. We're here with Matt and Dodge and myself, Kyle, and we're just going to have a bit of a chat about our sort of journeys into hunting so far and, and just do that as a bit of an intro and then hopefully down the line we'll get some interesting guests on and, and talk about their journey and uh, what makes them tick and what um, sort of drives them to uh, keep going forward in the endless pursuit of, of hunting in um, this great country where there's so many opportunities. So that's where we're at at the moment. Thanks, Carl. Good little intro and a good explanation of what our goal is. It seems like everyone's listening to podcasts at the moment and that, that's where it's at. And uh, I've been talking to Matt about this for a couple of months now and he came to me with the idea and sort of formulated a bit of a plan and got together and ended up on a hunt together not that long ago. And uh, Kyle, you came along on that one. Oberon, we had a Gurning State Forest on a little club hunt but and it just steamrolled from there and see where we ended up. Episode one, sitting here together around the table. Yeah, having a chat about our histories and, and how we all got into it. And I, um, first generation hunter, I don't have any background, family that really hunted. My grandparents and things own guns as being farmers. To them, that's just a shovel though. It's just a tool. They didn't really enjoy using it. It was for shooting something to eat for Christmas lunch. Uh, so they, that was dad's sort of bringing up with it, upbringing as well. Uh, he was in the army, so he didn't really enjoy using firearms because it meant that several hours of cleaning ensued after and that's his level of enjoyment was gone so when I was sort of 16 17 I uh, got introduced to firearms to a family friend of ours uh, who owned a property out at Cowra he um he took us out and we weren't doing any shooting at the time he was and uh, just shooting he had rabbits at the place uh, the occasional pig come through but not very often and it was pretty exciting to watch and then we finally uh, let me have a go and I vaguely remember him saying you're not allowed to use this big gun and then in hindsight I found out it was a 22-250 which is big now big bang a, at least yeah big bang that's a fraction of some of the guns I own now I just remember him saying that it's got a big kick on it and but he, he taught me the basics on shooting how to aim how to sight something in not so much hunting and uh, mostly just shooting and farm shooting and tradition that's been for many years for a lot of people just shooting ferals on their farm for either a bit of fun or or for the main reason to get rid of the ferals so that there's food for their own animals and that's how I started it uh it steamrolled since that and and changed a lot since then but um yeah that was my initial contact with firearms what about you Kyle would you yeah I um I have like a bit of a bit of family background, I guess. Um, been in hunting. My dad, um, you know, had a twenty two back in the day. I think Mum bought it for him for his birthday one year, and he it was a the old semi auto, um, probably Sterling or something like that. And I think that ended up getting handed over in ninety six. But even just growing up, uh, going up the bush with him, he's uh, one of his mates had a property up near Merriwa, which is um, pretty beautiful country, and we'd go up there. Um, stay at the shack and I remember like I was only a kid but some of the older boys would go out you know shooting rabbits and that with the 22 and, and come back with the rabbits and um, and eventually um, growing up my uncle um, took me out a bit on the, the same property up there with his old um, single barrel shotgun which I, I now own which is great and yeah I, remember, I think that was sort of the first time I had sort of gone out shooting was with with him we went and um, 
sat on the uh, edge of a paddock and um, just waited a good bit of country with a bit of rabbit sign around and a rabbit eventually popped out and he shot it with the shotgun and my ears rang and that was my introduction and it was um, I was pretty taken with it um, from the start but um, even before that like growing up my my dad and my uncle they um, grew up trapping rabbits around um, the, the creek of Fairfield like you know down the back of Fairfield back in the day before it was really built up and um, they'd go out and not so much you know the pest control thing or even you know for money or anything like that I think it was just a, a bit of fun you know boys being boys out there trapping rabbits and seeing how many they could get going back before that my dad talks about his uh, grandfather I think it was uh, hunting with dogs out around like Carlingford again like when that was all bush and um, it wasn't as built up you know tell stories of them being out with the hounds and um, they'd be chasing I guess foxes and stuff like that they're probably hunting roos and that for the, the pod as well and um, the old fellas would be able to tell whose dog was whose by the um, by the sound of them and what they had treed or bailed up or whatever. Um, so sort of growing up with stories of, of trapping and, and that sort of stuff, it always had me really interested, um, always pretty interested in firearms. You know, growing up as a kid, always had you know, plenty of toy guns hanging around. Um, grew really, up fishing really as well. I think of trapping being a huge part of Australian, Australian history. Yeah, but, um, you know, when you consider, you know, like South Sydney Rabbitohs, they get the, the name from the old Rabbitohs. They used to, used to trap for a living and sell those rabbits for meat, like during the Great Depression. And, and Dad, um, one of his older mates, the bloke that owned that property at Merrill, or old Bud, um, he, he was a bit older than, than my dad and my uncle, and, and he sort of grew up through that era, would, you know, trap to make money for for the meat yeah when you consider like it's i think the the traps and that are outlawed these days but um it was for a long time they're a big part of australia's um you know hunting culture and it would have been the days too before you know deer were out in big numbers and um you know even i guess pigs weren't as widespread and and that sort of stuff so you know rabbits and, and foxes and stuff really would have been the bread and butter of australian hunting culture for a fair while there so for me, I grew up sort of around that, just, you know, spotlighting rabbits, foxes, that sort of stuff. First thing I ever shot was a rabbit spotlighting with the 22. And then, um, you know, as you do, you grow up, you get a little bit older and get interested in, in different things. And I went and did the music thing for a while and um, was going to uni. And when you're a poor uni student, you can't have, you know, 20 different hobbies. It was, you know, music was my life outside of, out of study and work. And um, it wasn't until I moved out to Broken Hill for work, decided that I was going to go get my gun license and, and really get into hunting. And I guess my motivation was to get free range meat because I had sort of concerns looking at the a lot of farming practices, not necessarily in Australia, depending on what industry you're talking about. But uh, I just liked that idea of going to get my own meat and knowing where it came from and harvesting something that didn't belong there in the environment you know shooting deer shooting goats uh, pigs rabbits that sort of stuff not supposed to be there so you remove them you're doing the environment a favor you're doing the farmer a favor and um, you're putting meat in the freezer so that um, had a lot of appeal so I sort of cut my teeth as a hunter and a shooter out west there um, chasing rabbits amongst the salt scrub and shooting the odd pig on dams and stuff like that and and then since moving back closer to home um getting more and more into chasing deer so that's sort of my journey you know long short way 
um, as to where I am at the moment. I'm mostly a meat hunter, but I do get pretty keen on a set of antlers around March, April. But I'm, I'm slowly changing him. Yeah, yeah, slowly um, influencing me on the uh, the trophy aspect. And um, I, I guess that's sort of come to fruition this year where I've actually let a deer walk here and there and not shot it. <laughs> There's a few stages of becoming a hunter and I think uh, being able to let one walk and come home with a smile on your face is getting close to the final part of that journey. What about you, Matt? So, look, this um, I do apologise for the voice already because uh, obviously I'm a bit crook at the moment, but I think what I've really been excited about this podcast for, for not just the listeners but also myself is that there's so many different journeys and how people start and I think I'm so different from from you boys and I guess that's the reason I really want to do this is because I, I'm constantly learning myself. For me, it was at, at 18 years of age or, or just after, never shot a gun, um, never had any experience with hunting or trapping but I was a, I'm very big on being in the outdoors so my whole life has been camping and probably more spearfishing since I was about you know eight or nine and I guess it was just a, a bit of a natural progression for me to to get into to shooting and hunting because it always was weighing on the back of my mind that you know I love spearfishing but being in that big blue dark ocean on your own flopping around like a seal and you know, as I got fatter and looked a bit more like a morsel for those sharks yeah, I uh, carrying a burly trail on you yeah I thought uh, maybe this is the time to start to transition away from being in the water but um, the other thing was the the weather I, I used to get frustrated a lot being um, obviously living here in Sydney and you know it was a bit of a hike to get down to the, the the ocean and you'd get down there and if the swell was too big or the current wasn't good or even just visibility you'd really be, be struggling so, so that sort of made me question you know what is something that I'm still out in the outdoors because that's what I love but also that I can do rain hail shine and as I'm getting older also something that I can do um, for a long time because I've been always heavily invested in in sports at, at quite a high level and then wanting to you know not being able to play as competitively because of age and injury getting into that so I started out by getting into shooting and just hitting those paper targets that probably was a bit of a flow on effects uh, from being in the army where I thoroughly enjoyed the shooting not so much the cleaning I, I know what George was talking about then when he uh, he mentioned his old man yeah you um, don't mind um, cleaning a rifle you know on a Saturday night after you've been to the range if, when it becomes routine you have to do it every day it becomes a bit of a chore right oh m- massively but but it, it didn't wane the interest and and I thoroughly enjoyed it and I I guess still shooting, you know, I, I do like to dabble in the long range sort of stuff and as well as the sort of hunting, but um, I am transitioning a lot more to the hunting and, you know, it's um, it's been something that's a, it's a bit of a challenge, you know, not having mates with properties, not having access to properties, so it has all been, I guess, self-taught going into state forests, which is, is a pretty hard slog, as you boys are well aware and I'm sure our listeners are as well. But, yeah, um, it's a steep learning curve, isn't it? It is. You know, going there as an experienced hunter and it's hard going in there as a new hunter. Yeah, and and I think I've been lucky enough. I'm a bit of a nerd in the sense that I like to to research and find out absolutely everything I can before doing things. So I I guess, you know, I I did a lot of prep and, you know, the old sort of analogy of uh, like the Boy Scout analogy of of always be prepared, you know, scouting areas from from home on Google Maps and reading about deer and what are their movements and and watching, you know, anything I could find, whether it be YouTube, whether it be Meat Eater, whatever it might be. And and that, I guess, to be honest, I think it put me in good stead because every time I've gone out to a state forest except the the last trip with you boys, I've got on to sign and deer. Trying to say that we're the... 
We're the reason you didn't see anything. Or? I don't. Don't we? Bad luck, Charmo. I don't want to point fingers. It's the last time I'm going with you guys. Yeah. But uh, thanks for <laughs> thanks for spooking those deer in our direction. Mate. Yeah, I know. But you guys saw them. Yeah. But from, from you know, with me getting in there, and maybe it was just dumb luck, but it was you know I was able to find the, the trails and, and find the sign and, and sit off them and and you know have the wind in the right direction and, and come across them sort of each and every time and um, I guess that that first honk that I got from that red deer, I. I was I was sold. Just was an amazing feeling, even though I didn't get to pull the trigger. Spine tingling, those yeah. sorts of noises. It was awesome, and Don't I just you ever samba honk you from behind. It sounds oh. like a freight train at ten meters. Well, I got I got done. Um, I'm, I'm sure in another podcast we'll talk about. It. I got the the Manus Pole podcast, but I had a nice uh, a fellow just a couple of experiences. One came within ten meters with a, a little fawn, but I also got winded by one while I was sitting not setting up in the morning, and, uh, and that was good because that was only probably about fifteen meters away. So um, you know, like those experiences, even if you don't take meat or you don't get the shot off, uh, it's you know it's being out there, just in nature, you know. I, I find I connect more being out there. I love I love being in the bush and you know from just sitting there listening to the sounds and you know that's that's been one of the things that I've I've thoroughly enjoyed getting into it and you know it's it's exciting and it's something that I want to learn more because I want to pass that on to, to my my kids and I think whether you do it for trophy whether you do it for meat you know we all have our own interests and it's not a negative thing it's a positive thing and and i'm really excited to see where i go you know what the next few years hold and and you know just honing my skills um and i guess the other big thing for me i'm, I'm a real tech guy so you know every time i go out for a hunt i come back and, and i got to thank you boys because you know we went out and that hunt we had and i had some terrible pants on um getting cut to shreds while we were while i was following these two you know came back and, and dodge put me onto the the right the right pants and uh went and got a got a set for me next hunt and There's the uh 511 strike pants they're, they're, they're cracking yeah do you think we can sponsoring get, yeah can we get a sponsorship from mate they are sensational i um I could only get one pair and I, I thought oh, I tried to get another pair that was not the same brand but is close to and I wore them on the third day of the hunt. Jesus Christ, I got spiked up and just went there. I, I never got touched in the 511s and as soon as I put this other one on, it was terrible. So, you know, little tips like that, just getting out there. You know, the boys made a bit of fun of me at me tripod, me binoculars, but uh, I had a bit of issue with the binocular holder so bought a new one and, and that's just a harness and that's been fantastic. So that worked a treat. So I, I just, love that. Just a question, Matt. How much did your pack weigh on that hunt? Look, you know, once again, I've got to say, I'm used to the army, mate. So, you know, weight in a pack doesn't really bother me too much, but I reckon it was a good... You're avoiding the... 20 kilos, mate. I don't don't know. I've never weighed it. I've been too scared. I weighed mine. What was yours? 13 and a half. But that was, yeah. And that was light for me. And yours was twice the size. I I like me stuff. What can I say? My issue isn't so much the weight um, in the forest. My issue is going through like pines and stuff like that. And I'm a tall guy and ducking under branches and stuff like that. If you have that one of those big packs that's sort of sitting up above your shoulder, you do end up catching it um, and making more noise. And, and I'm just very conscious of noise in the forests because um, as we know, they get hunted hard. The, um, the animals are pretty switched on. So um, yeah, I'm super noise conscious. Everything, you know, I wear is, um, you know, like soft to brush up against um, trees I try to tape down, you know, loose buckles and everything like that. Anything that makes noise is, you know, a big no-no for me. And I've found, um, you know, like you, when I started hunting the forests and even just hunting in general on private land, I'd, you know, take this big day pack and, you know, like you say, the Boy Scout mentality, you know, be prepared for everything. 
ended up finding that you know in the forests um, generally you shoot something you're not too far from a, a fire trail or a road or a track or something so if you've got you know a knife and gps and you know a few game bags and, and stuff like that and your basics and some water and a snack uh, you should be right really and you can probably drag that animal up to the road and, and then go get your car and bring it back um, that's my general experience yeah but i think we'll probably do a whole episode on on gear and yeah, um, why we carry what we what we do because i know dodge has some experience yeah the reason my back my bag is uh, as big as it is is because i've done the will be right will be good i'll just wear what's on my back and take one uh, cliff bar in my pocket it was and then cost me a night in the mountain and hypothermia so my backpack is uh, well overloaded but you'll be coming to me at some point when we have i was going to say that's why i hunt with you mate yeah you've got all the gear yeah all the gear, no idea, no idea. So. I mean, I'm with you. They're, I think that's one of the other things is is going out with people, and I think that's um, you know joining the same hunting club and, and meeting new boys and, and and you know getting tips and tricks and and looking things. I'm always refining and I'm always looking, and, and I agree with you with the pack. And um, I could probably you know downsize my pack size a little bit. You know, again, it comes down to that cost, doesn't it? Like it's it's not a cheap hobby. You know, that's uh, I, I sort of I did a lot. I do like a lot of hiking and, and hike throughs and things like that. And I use just a a Duda's hiking pack. You know, it's it's uh, one that you know cost me I think about eight hundred dollars. And it's sort of like oh, do I want to buy a smaller pack that's six hundred dollars just to save me a little bit of size, where I could probably strap it down a little bit more or carry a little bit less. But um, it's you know it's, it's finding that nice balance. And I, I think that's yeah. And the good tricky. thing about a pack like that is if you do shoot a deer that's you know a, a good couple of k from a track, Get the whole thing, um, yeah. you can yeah, especially a fallow. You know you could quarter that thing up and carry the whole thing out in the pack yeah really no issue as where i've done some pretty uncomfortable pack outs where you're carrying the animal out whole with the you know legs tied like a backpack like you see the kiwis doing and um yeah that certainly puts some strain on you your back doing it that way um and it's it's that trade-off of the the comfort while you're hunting versus that comfort while you're packing out um, that you you start weighing up it, it so is and i know that pack that i got for for hiking it's um it's it's generally a little bit heavier than some of the packs but it's got so much more padding and it's so the, the comfort level i can have it on all day every day for four days straight and yeah I'm, you could carry i'm like good samba legs out and that and you, you'd hardly the, feel it in the, the equivalent of having a smaller pack that's not comfortable well like if someone's slugging around with a small pack that's not built right for them correct it's hurting yeah you're carrying 15 more kilos comfortably yeah what would you rather yeah, yeah it's that trade-off isn't it you've got to find what's what's right for you and what you're i guess prepared to take too yeah. so there's guys out there chasing grams and shaving grams off everything and it just depends cutting on the, down toothbrushes and that's, yeah that's a shift mate that's a different <laughs> conversation it uh it just depends on your style of hunting these boys have both mentioned state forest hunting and the one we went on uh, that was my first state forest hunt Ever. I've had an R licence for some years, but I've done nothing with it. I got it purely for the uh, insurance purposes. But um, I've always hunted private land. Um, my back, I've been pretty lucky with that, but my backpack issues with that are minimal because you're usually near a vehicle and you're on private land, you don't have to worry about other people. And then beyond that, my other experience is backpack hunting. So we're either on horses or in the middle of nowhere. So I've got multiple backpacks. I've got 10-day backpacks, two-day backpacks, when you're doing it for a job, it just becomes a tool. So, um, yeah, it, it definitely costs us. So, cost so that, was, that was your first state of forest hunt ever. Is, uh, that probably explains why you had the blaze orange g string. And yeah, I was wondering, yeah. you know, you got to have it outside, mate. Like, yeah, well, I did wear it outside my clothes. It was, <laughs> I borrowed it off. I saw that. Uh, yeah, mate. 
I didn't wash it either. Yeah. Um, That's why I wore it outside. I, uh, I thought just on that, you should probably talk a little bit about your experience, you know, your, your story in hunting and, and what you've done and yeah. give the listeners a, a bit of a rundown on that. Yeah, well, I um, also I was interested in joining this group here and having this podcast because we all come at this at different current levels of experience. I'm definitely not the most experienced person I've come across, but I've done a lot of fun things in my life and uh, been really fortunate with the people I've met and the, the trips I've been on. And it, uh, it all sort of started uh, locally, just, again, learning how to shoot. But then one of the first things I did after getting my firearms license was book a trip to Africa, as you do. And uh, it started as, as a uh, as I do. It started as a ten day hunt. Uh, that was the organisation phase, and then my partner at the time decided that she would like to come to Africa, and it turned into a twenty odd day trip with a three day hunt. So it was pretty cut down. Um, still had an amazing time, and that was my first introduction to trophy hunting, I suppose, um, international hunting. There's two learning curves there that are very steep. And uh, it, it was a great, great time. Um, had a lot of fun and highly recommend Africa as a, a first, uh, what do you say, toe in the water, I suppose, to, to international hunting. There's obviously some, some tricks to Africa. The hunting side of it's quite easy and simple. So that was, that was my first overseas journey. And then I came back from that with this real wanderlust, this real, like, what, what else is there? What, what, else, what else can I do? One thing I did was break up with that girlfriend. That was a, a good step in the right direction. Probably a good call. <laughs> it was. And, and then a, a friend of mum's came to me and said, well, came to her actually and said, I, I think Dodge would really enjoy what I've been doing overseas. And she's like, oh, yeah, what was that? Oh, I was a hunting guide. And I didn't even know that existed prior to Africa. I didn't know that was a thing. And uh, he had been working in Montana for several years. I just spoke to him on the phone quickly about it and I was pretty excited about it. And he said, oh, I'll, uh, I'll talk to them over there and let you know. And at the time, I was working for my dad, and I didn't really need much notice to go on holidays and things. It was pretty easy. And uh, I remember exactly where I was on the highway, and Mel, my wife, hates it because I pointed out every time we drive past this one spot on the side of the highway, and said, that was the spot where I got the phone call to say, come to America. And it was so exciting. I, uh, I left a month or so after that and, and uh, spent my first three months in Montana uh, as a, just an assistant guide, skinning, and it's where I learned how to do most of my caping and skinning and just assisting, and it just snowballed from there. I, I ended up spending several years going back and forth to Montana, uh, and then that stepped across to Canada. I went to Canada for a holiday, and that turned into guiding in Canada as well, up in northern BC, and Canada was just next level. It's sort of it's the peak of where I've been. It just it's, uh, it takes hunting to a whole other level, Um you know, we, we think we've got some pretty cool animals over here and then you, you step into bear country and moose country and and just not the animals themselves but the access to them, the way you get there, it's, it's not just down the road. It's a two-day horse ride, 12 hours a day. That's pretty cool. Packing in 16 horses in Montana and less shorter strings when we're in Canada but you'd have wrecks along the way. You'd fall through holes in the ground and nearly break horses' legs and you split to second decisions. Are you going to put this horse down or drag it out of this hole and just... There's some incredible uh, scenery we saw, animals, and just the people I met, though. That was my favourite part. We'll get into that another time, but there's diff- different sorts of clients that I'd come across. And by that time, I was a, I had my guides licence in BC. I had a, it was a legitimate job over there, and I was doing three or four months at a time, guiding moose, um, the occasional mountain goat. There was a couple of elk hunts in there, but uh, mo- mostly moose, and... Then beyond that, um, that was when I got married. So I still went back over after getting married, 
one other time and then we switched gears and focused mostly on New Zealand. So actually um, formed a really good relationship with my now business partner in New Zealand and um, he sort of took me under his wing and showed me everything there is over there and everything they've got access to. And uh, he's got one of the premier outfits over there for uh, all sorts of hunting, access to everything available. And it really opened my eyes to, to that side of things. And that was where he taught me a lot of my business side of how to run a, a hunting outfit and, and be a, a proper booking agent. It's not just about the hunt. It's uh, about the whole experience for these guys because... These guys are some of these guys are saving up their whole life to come and shoot one animal, and then they got to go home and tell their wife they've shot it. And now they have got to spend ten grand getting it mounted. It's uh, there's a whole lot of complexities to it. But so my journey started in a paddock and cow, and it's sort of taken me through the mountains of Montana. I've I've hunted Texas, yeah, Canada, uh, Africa, uh, Australia quite extensively, and in New Zealand. So I've uh, I'm definitely not finished the journey for me. It's still beginning, and I've got substantial trophy room sitting at home and everyone says oh you're running out of room i said no nah, i haven't even touched the other continents yet just have to get a bigger house mate just need a bigger house bigger trophy room but my trophy room shared with probably two-thirds of them are my amounts in there but um my wife also hunts so that was a, a interesting development on my journey when I, I came along and met her she already had her firearms license she'd already done a, a fair amount of shooting uh, her parents owned a, a farm out at coonabarabran and uh, on our one of our first dates, we are at the Sydney Royal Easter show and she said, oh, we're going to go out to the family farm at Easter. Do you think you want it? Yes. I didn't even finish. Yes, I'd like to come. And uh, we went out there and that's where I actually, uh, let's say, guided her onto her first deer that she'd ever shot. And that's that was a, a big thing for me. And she said like she couldn't work out why this guy was high-fiving me and, and so excited. Like it was nothing to her. She hadn't... I've been hunting my whole life and – well, not my whole life, but my whole hunting career, I should say. And she still shot nearly a bigger fellow than I have in that first time. And to her it was nothing, but she couldn't understand the – people hunt their whole lives to possibly shoot a deer and she just went out and whacked one on the first trip. But um, got that thing caped and mounted and, uh, and now it sits in the trophy room with several other of her trophies. So then we sort of hunted together a fair bit and now we've got kids, we take – Take them on our journeys. Grace, my little daughter, she's been on a, several trips. She's sort of been to New Zealand, technically, when she was in mum's tummy. She's been on chittle hunts, and you know, I can't wait to, to show them, both her and my son Ryder, the, uh, the journeys I've been on. And that was another driving force behind doing this podcast. I've done some cool stuff, but I forget about it. I've got a terrible memory. So let's get it down and that they can listen to it in years to come. Yeah, I think it's once you start get getting started like telling the stories and then it jogs a memory and you start telling more stories and um, yeah that's the only jogging i do is my memory <laughs> <laughs> better so. get jogging soon mate so you can get yeah. in shape for, for the mountains hey new zealand yeah three day hunt we're not going on yeah, yeah. No. can we edit that out yeah no yeah so i think yeah definitely important to, to tell the story and, and record the story and i'm a bit like you too like i, I felt um getting into hunting you know, you think oh, I'll always remember, you know, my first deer and my first state forest deer and my first this and that trip and that trip, and then you start doing a fair bit of it, and all of a sudden it um, just mould into one. It, yeah, yeah, it does become just one big experience and one big journey. So my uh, my favourite part though has just been the guiding. I I I get just as much joy out of taking someone else out for a hunt as I do myself, and I haven't actually personally shot many things overseas mostly because i can't afford to shoot a moose but to get paid to take someone else to shoot their first moose 
that's a pretty incredible thing just to see and do and, and be a part of that memory for them. And we'll get into it later. We were all part of the uh, hunting club and my main reason for joining that hunting club was just to try and help other people. I, I had some pretty steep learning curves. I mentioned that. I'm reasonably self-taught. I mean, I've come across a lot of people along the way that taught me little things, but I put myself in those positions to learn those things. So I sort of consider it self-taught somewhat. I just don't want other people to make the mistakes I've made. I'd like to see other people succeed quicker than I did. My main thing I enjoy these days is taking other people on journeys and uh, being part of their first memories. Yeah, I think um, it's never been a better time to be a new hunter in um, not just Australia but internationally uh, with social media, YouTube, um, you know, all those sorts of resources that are out there. I remember growing up, um, always being interested in hunting and, and wanting to hunt. And like I said, I went out for those few early experiences with mainly my uncle and, and my dad a bit as well. Um, dad was running his own business and was, was always pretty busy, as you are, uh, when you run your own business. Just my sort of uh, way that I was accessing hunting was going to the news agents by the old sporting shooter magazine. I used to go in there re- religiously every month and take my pocket money in there and, and buy that magazine. And um, I still read it today. And it was, you know, a lot of the stuff that I knew about firearms was from old, you know, Nick Harvey's columns and stuff like that. All my early knowledge about deer and and pigs and goats and stuff like that was from reading articles in in Sporting Shooter magazine. You know, if I had been a kid and found, um, you know, something like Aussie Bush Harvest on YouTube when I was like 10 years old, like I would have just watched that thing on repeat nonstop the way that I used to reread those magazines cover to cover. Did you cut the photos out and stick them on your school books? No, I didn't. I, I think I recognised that that was maybe a talk with the counsellor at school um, if I did that. Yeah, that you know, that was my access into hunting knowledge. And, and today we almost have the problem now that there's too much information out there and it's the sifting through the information and, and working out what actually applies to you, what works and what works in your situation. And that's where I think the, the hunting club is a really good resource because you're meeting people who are maybe hunting in similar situations to you and um, they can impart their knowledge and, and their experience with you and, and it's people who actually want to help other people and I've found that we've had some really good chats at the hunting club that have been enlightening and, and it might just be those little tips and tricks or it might just be something about a specific species or you know just hearing people's stories and experiences and just um, it opens your eyes up a bit to what's out there and what's available and some of it closer than you think and some of it more accessible than you think. It's been a really positive experience. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I agree. I think that, um, you know, coming from, from my perspective is I don't really have any mates that hunt. So from joining a uh, the hunting club for me is probably a big one because I've um, not got too many of my friends that actually hunt. So everything's been sort of solo trips, solo things. And, and whilst I enjoy that, I think that there is an element that it could be a lot more fun. Like at the end of the day, sitting around with a few boys, having a chat about, you know, what happened, what experience, you know, that that to me just probably makes it a bit more exciting, a bit more fun um, to do. So that was one of the reasons I definitely looked at the hunting club to, to just meet people and go, hey, you know, I, I'm by no means an expert, but, you know, I, I like to think of myself as a bit of a sponge. I can learn and I'm sure I've, I'm sure my journey is just as important as someone that's got as much experience as Dodge because I'm coming in this quite new, quite fresh now and, and getting into it sort of a couple of years before COVID, I did have very limited experience in the bush because we're on lockdown you know i think i I went for probably maybe five to ten hunts 
prior to sort of COVID and everything going on and having a kid and and, um, and the like. So going from, from that to then just chomping at the bit to get out and, you know, it's great fun being solo, but it's also, you know, what I really enjoyed about the club hunt was going out in the bush, you know, whether we went our separate ways in the morning, did our hunts on our own, but then coming back and, and having a brew around the around the, the cars and having a chat at what happened and, and picking up those little things, you know, telling the boys I saw absolutely nothing, didn't even see, you know, a shit and uh, they saw a couple of deer. That was, it's always nice. So, yeah, you know, but th- these are the things that make, make it fun because, you know, it's just, it's getting out there, it's being active, it's being healthy, doing something you enjoy. Hopefully... If, if you get a deer or you get whatever you're going for for a bit of meat for the family, fantastic. If you don't, hey, what, what a great way to, to spend a day, you know, and, and get out there and have fun and be amongst nature. And, you know, for me, uh, you know, my background being an, an Indigenous fella, that, you know, being out in the bush is a big part of me just connecting to, to my culture and my family. And that, that, that's, that's a big part for me when I'm, when I'm out there and I can sit there for eight hours in the day, just chilling and listening to the sounds and, and being quite at home. So um, it's exciting to, you know, hear about the stories like Dodge, you know, that that's a dream going overseas and hunting like you have and experiencing those things. And, you know, I, I, I sit here and I watch Meat Eater with turkeys and listen to turkey calls and mate, I'm just, I'd, I'd die to do that. Like just call them in and, and get that. I, I think that would be one of the great experiences ever but um you know so so those things are, are all great things and all those young fellas or old fellas getting into to, you know onset hunting i think they call it now as um you know, adult onset hunting i think it's um it's a really positive thing and i think we need to grow our community if we want to keep our way of life as well and i think podcasts like this is going to help that and you know, I think the three of us have very different journeys and very different stories, which I'm sure we're going to flush out along the way and, and talk, especially with different guests and things coming on. And I'm, I'm excited to hear about everybody's different story and how they started and where they're going. And I think, um, you know, Usher, you were alluding to you're starting to shift a little bit from, from that meat dedication towards a little bit more of the the antlers in in the rut and um you know that that's good to hear because it's a it's a new pursuit yeah it's it's one of those things it's it's a bit of a, a journey um and getting into it like i said i sort of got back into hunting as an adult and the motivation was the the free range organic meat you know all those buzzwords um that, that everyone loves to throw around and I feel like, you know, when I got into it and, you know, had family and friends and they would say, oh, you, you got guns and you're a hunter and stuff like that. And I'd be like, oh, yeah, you know, I do it for the meat and they're, they're pests, it's pest control and that sort of stuff. And I felt there was a little bit of like trying to justify that to people who didn't fully understand. Um, and the more I do it and the more I sort of go down this this path of this journey, I realise that it's it's so much more than that. And like you say, just being out in the bush, more and more like studies are coming out, especially I think out of like this sort of post-lockdown world, realising how important connecting with nature is for human beings, for your physical health and your mental health. And just realising that it, it's all part of it, that it's there's no one motivation. You know, I hunt because I enjoy it, first and foremost. And that doesn't mean that I enjoy killing if I just enjoyed killing, I'd get a job at the meatworks. It's the it's been out in the bush. It's getting the meat. It's um, you know chasing a buck or a stag or a big boar because they're they're the most challenging ones. They're the big ones. They're the old ones. They're the ones that you really have to be switched on to to try and find. And it's just there's so many facets to hunting 
uh, to explore and, and to experience. And, and that's where I think throwing ideas around for this podcast, we came up with that idea of the endless pursuit because it really is an endless pursuit that you, you could hunt every day of the year in Australia year round and constantly be learning and, and be pursuing different avenues. And I think learning new things, I think that, that that's the one for me. I think two things is that learning new things every time I go out in the bush, I've never come back, you know, I come back from a hunt or being out in the bush and I, I feel two things and I'd be interested to see if you guys are similar. I feel recharged. I just that, that disconnect from tech, that disconnect from the daily grind and, you know, just, just being out in there in the bush, camping, you know, back to back to that sort of natural being a part of the ecosystem because I think as humans we sometimes forget that we are a part of the ecosystem and because we aren't, you know, directly there, people, you know, we buy, buy meat from shops and things like that. I think we've got a disconnect now which I sometimes feel we all have at some to some extent but when you go to the bush that, that connection just gets a bit stronger um, and I'd, I've never been on something where I haven't learnt something or come back from a hunt going, this happened to me. Um, you know, it's... It's exciting. There's, there's, you know, whether it be listening to wild dogs howling around you, you know, seeing some antlers over the hill, finding a new scrape, you know, just that, that, that to me is there's always a memorable moment and I appreciate and I'm, I'm hoping that I'll be like you know, yourselves when you say you start to forget them because there's so many of them. But for me, there's always a memorable moment to come back and, and I've got a lot less than you boys, of course, but um, that's, that's key. You are saying about joining the hunting club for advice and things that... I've forgotten about the things that I learnt when I was starting hunting. It was that long ago. So for you guys to come and ask us questions at the hunting club, it really like reinvigorates us and like makes us think a little bit. Like oh, like so. Example: This happened the other week. Um, again, I've had mostly private access, and someone said to me, um, "I've never shot a kangaroo," and it, I'd never thought about the fact that people don't have access to private property to do that. And that's one of the the things I've probably done the most of you know just helping farmers out culling roos on tags and things and just that's where i really honed my shooting skills um you know quite often moving targets and small small targets and things to hear that from you know a fellow who just hunts state forest and he said he'd never shot a kangaroo it really it just reminded me that how lucky i was to have that access to those things and um again that i'd forgotten about how privileged i've been to do what i've done um, so yeah, we we really appreciate it when you guys come along and ask questions because it it helps us just remember what we've done, but also to sort of verbalise what we've done to really instil that and continue that on the journey. And again, just with the comment of the the name of the podcast, it's not called Australian Hunting Destinations. We're all on a journey. We're not worried about the end product yet. We don't know where we're going to end up, but um, we're still on the journey. There's no there's no end to it yet. So looking forward to where it goes. Yeah, that was a bit of a, a bit of a revelation for me um, joining the club because Dodge, you'd been into me for a while, saying come down to a meeting, come down to a meeting, and I, I did come down to one, and then COVID kicked off and um, all that, and then I finally got around to joining up and coming down, and um, I, I still think of myself as a bit of a beginner hunter, you know, I, um, you know, shoot, shot rabbits and I whistle foxes and. I've shot a couple of deer, but I haven't shot anything massive or anything like that. And shot a shot a few in the forests and stuff like that, which I, you know, you you certainly feel um, successful when you manage to get them in the forest, um, where it's sort of equal opportunity. But joining the club and talking to people who were like there 
hats off to those guys that rock up and say, hey, I don't have a gun license, but I want to get into this hunting just thing. Just that raw like, newness of them. And, oh, yeah. And yeah. You, like, you came along with, we call you the R license specialist. Like, like you know, the state forest. Shout out to Tribia, who's the true R license Yeah, well, he came specialist. along later. So you were the original, you're the OG. But, like, I was leaning on you for questions, and you guys are like, what do you want to learn from me? You've done so much more, but I've never hunted. I don't even know how to book a state forest hunt. Usher talked me through it over the phone one night, like weeks before we went on our first hunt. It's not, and for these guys, it's just second nature. So we, you know, everyone brings something new to a club. I've got my experience. You've got yours. You've got yours, Matt. It's, you know, whether it's new and it's questions or it's old and it's experience, it's just everyone benefits from it. It's been a good one for me. Like obviously being pretty new to the club and being able just to, to have a chat and bounce ideas. Even like, as I said, just picking up a pair of pants and going, hey, they, they were fantastic to, 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 you know, be out in the bush and not being getting cut up and, you know, not being in the club. I wouldn't have known about that. Like, there's – I haven't seen anything on any any of the, the endless Facebook groups I'm on about, um, you know, 5'11 pants and they were crackers. I, I, you know, got one set and I'll be buying some more. You know, I was, I was disappointed that they were out of the size. They're, you know. they're also very generous with their sizing. I am nowhere near a small – but I fit their small jacket. It's there's, very, a, there's a bit of stretch in that waistband, isn't it? It's very comforting for myself. Mate, I, um, I was just disappointed. They, you know, I ended, and, and to be honest with you, I went in the black. Like, not, not the best colour I wanted to get, but I was just like, hey, I'm going on a hunt. I'm going tomorrow. I need, need a pair of pants because what I had was just, it was just not chopped for, for what we went through, um, whether it be the navigational skills of um, certain people. We'll leave that one alone for another podcast. But... Um, you know, for me, just, just simple things like that, you know, that's, you know, the benefit of being in a hunting club and, and being able to just have a conversation and chat and see, you know, the difference. And, and even gear, like, as I said, I'm a, I'm a gear person, so I, I love me tech and I love, love the gear. And having a look through your binos with the rangefinder, mate, I was just, I was in love. I was looking at going, geez, these are crackers. I, yeah, I, even just going from my Vortex Diamondbacks yeah. to, um, to Dodgers, what are they, Swaro? Range finder ranges, yeah, they're um they're pretty phenomenal. They that was just different level, like with a comment, price tag to match. Yeah, yeah, like your comment with the backpacks. To me, that was a business tool. Yeah. I needed it. Um, from a personal hunting point of view, I would probably like I used to run. I remember when I first run binos, it was a game changer. And then you get a range finder, that's a game changer. And then to join the two together, it's just next level. But from a personal hunting point of view, um, if I'm hunting by myself. Like pre-guiding, I wouldn't have worried about it. But from a guide's point of view, it was definitely necessary. That's why I purchased it. Just from if you're shooting behind the gun, you're not got your binoculars, and I need to be able to tell you how far away an animal is as it's moving. So to make that call without changing from binos, rangefinder, bino, rangefinder, and then if they shoot while I'm on rangefinder, I can't see what's happened. So to to join the two was just a anyway. I was digressing a little bit, but um, yeah, we'll talk about optics and things at a, at a different date. But it. Uh, you know, I love I love the optics I've ended up with, but I did start with nothing and then worked our way up to them. But they're definitely an investment, one that's worthy. And I, I think that's the other one is that there is it, – it's not a, a cheap hobby. And I think that's the other thing because there's not a lot of time. Like, it's one thing going into the, the gun shop and, and picking up a, a scope or a bino and, and looking at the wall or trying to look out the door and get a bit more distance, but it's not the same. And there is really – unless you've got mates – in the game with different equipment to, to test out and try out, it's tricky. And, you know, it, it's 
you and I've made the I've made many mistake of buying you know something that I probably should have shelled out a little bit more money and you know I, I think I think it was a couple of hunts ago a twenty two pretty cheap twenty two with a fixed scope pretty crappy scope it's when I shoot all my rifles my my accuracy when I use that's terrible but I, I don't think it's you know it could be me who knows be, but yeah. but compared to the other ones where I don't have those issues you know but it was just a fact of let's you know that's all I've got at the moment let's grab it let's let's have a go and you know I, I sort of reflect and I go did I stuff up there you know should I have shelled out a little bit more but well you know I got the good gun and, and you know, then I, I got a cheap optic and went, hey, that's not up to scratch on it. So stepped up the optics and things like that. And they're, they're learning curves, I know, but being able to, to just have a look through someone else's or, you know, touch and feel and, and have a chat and, and get that review because, as you said, I think, you know, Usher alluded to it earlier, there's a, there's a heap of stuff on YouTube and there's a heap of stuff out there and everyone's tastes it different and you don't know what, you know what's going on in the background? Are people getting a bit of cash to, to support this, or what's happening? So it's a it's a learning curve from that part. But as I said, it's not cheap. So you know you want to sort of buy stuff that's good gear, and you're not replacing, and it's going to do the job, and you're going to be happy with it for a long time. Um, and that's a learning curve too in purchasing things. And I know we're not sponsored by hunting clubs, but we come back to it. The you talk about touching and feeling different uh, optics and guns and things. One thing that our particular club does, um, we've done it twice now but range days so i've got quite an access to guns i've got you know nine or ten guns or so and i can take them all down there and you might you know bring your 22 and whatnot but you can sit behind my different guns and have a feel what the calibers are what the optics are before you purchase one um, big benefit to hunting clubs is, is the members there are generally there to help we've all got different firearms for different reasons so you can listen to everyone's reason for what you know what's the best caliber for shooting ducks at 700 meters like everyone's got an opinion on everything <laughs> and it gets a little bit hard sometimes online to decipher that the different mediums and um, yeah but if you yeah, um ask the experts on facebook you need a 300 win mag for everything everything in australia and i don't have one yet so i need to purchase one sorry mel but there's another point there you made uh, about trying optics in a shop that's a whole nother you know you look through the door everyone does it you look through the door and you see the factory across the road it's a, it's just not an honest way to, to look at things but and then my third comment on what, what and that that's not the shop's fault i mean like no. what what can you do like you can't take it for a, buy, a try before you buy it's like um trying to you know buy boots in store like you can't go climb a mountain in them it's it's you know, no. you do your best no and I, I understand that but um yeah getting your hands on stuff to try it is definitely my my recommendation but um my other comment on that is talking about buying the the optics that you might think later is oh, i might not have done the right thing there my theory buy once cry once so if it's going to hurt just um if you can't afford it try not to buy something while you're there just because you're there you're like oh, i've gone to the gun shop i may as well come home with something just wait another three months until you can afford the one you want unless you really need it for something yeah not the tie over so it's no something. yeah don't uh, don't because what you'll end up doing is buying the 700 one because you couldn't afford the 1200 eventually you're going to buy the 1200 and how much have you spent? Yeah, I, I think that's something, you know, early in my journey, that's what I've done. Um, you know, even as I was talking before about the binoculars, you know, got got a cheap little binocular holder that screwed in. It didn't screw in that well. It was wobbly. It was pretty horrible. Shelled out a bit more. Got a got a nice bog harness. And, mate, crackers. Sits there perfectly. You know, couldn't, couldn't have been happier with it. And, and for the difference in, you know, a little bit more money, but... You know, it's something that I, I think it's a learning curve. And I think, you, as you said, buy once, cry once. I, I'm, I'm all for that now. It's something that I'll definitely preach to, to new hunters and, and people that, 
you know, when they're considering what they're buying and what they want to do. But, um, you know, I think that's important. But it's a learning curve. I think that's the thing. It, it's all a learning curve and you shouldn't beat yourself up too much about these things. It's just one of those journeys. Yeah, I know, like, personally, um, when I got into shooting as an adult and went and got my first guns, uh, I got a two four three and a, a twenty two. And um, the bloke at the shop, yeah, the guns came in and, yep, your guns are in. I went and had a chat with him and I said, all right, I need a scope for these. What do you reckon on the 243? And he, he set me straight with the um, scope on the 243. I still have that scope. It's just a, a good Redfield scope. Yeah, good for the time, value for money. But then um, for the 22, he said, oh, I've got this scope here. It's, um, it's actually an air rifle scope, so it's really tough and all this sort of thing. And it was like a 5 to 20 by 50 scope with a illuminated reticle and adjustable objective and that sort of thing and um i said yeah, yeah no worries yeah, and the price was right and he put it on there and i kind of walked out of the shop and took it home and took it hunting a couple of times and i was like gee the scope almost weighs as much as the gun and and i don't think he was at fault in trying to sort of sell me that i think it's probably just different context you know that was out um out west where a lot of people are spotlighting at night out of a vehicle and that sort of scope was probably perfect for those conditions. But for what I wanted to do, which was walk about, you know, on um, sunrise or sunset and shoot a few rabbits, you know, freestanding or off your knee or something, um, it wasn't really ideal. You know, you just need a little, um, you know, three to nine by 40 at most. And, and optics is definitely one of those things when you get into shooting, you think more is better, bigger is better. And it's, it's really not the case. It's all about balance and right tool for the job. One um, comment about the, the cost of hunting it also doesn't have to be expensive if you're just first starting out we've all talked about optics and things i started without binoculars you've got to start somewhere just get into it get your license buy one gun or once you've got your license you can actually borrow a gun off a friend most people don't know that but it's just a matter of getting out there and learning if you can bottom end package on a 223 probably 900 bucks for a, a Cheap gun and a cheap scope? Yeah, even if, yeah, buying new, you could, and for something, even if you spent that little bit more, you could get something that would last you a lifetime. Yeah. Um, you know, like a Hauer with a bottom end Leopold scope or a uh, Vortex scope and with definitely their the second hand warranty. Second hand market. I mean, so many firearms um, that are second hand, they've fired 50 rounds. They're still almost in factory grease, you know, safe, if you safe find queens, the right one. Safe Queens, exactly. Um, you know, because. That's the thing about hunting. There is a big barrier to entry um, and it's as hard as it is to get your license and wait for your PTA and pay for the firearms and get into all that. Um, That is one barrier to entry. There is also, if you don't have access to private property and you're you're thinking, I'm going to go out in the state forest and um, shoot deer out there, it is going to be a steep learning curve. And there's some people who are not cut out for that and they do that and they do it for a year and they do a few trips and they don't even see an animal and they, they go, oh, I'm not going to renew my licence, I'm going to dispose my firearms. And They're the guns bang, you need to there's, buy. There's your, uh, your first gun to buy, mate. That's what you want. Yeah, I'll jump in there and say that take out the COVID time, it's, you know, I think it took probably a good close to four years before I fired my first shot in a state forest, you know, getting out there a lot. And I don't think I chambered around till probably, yeah, year three maybe year four and 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 i've let one go um you know it's it's and i think that's it's interesting for non-hunters like um you know as i said i've got a lot my my wife's a non-hunter and and um my mates i've got a lot of mates are and they they can't understand that i'll go out hunting for a weekend or a week and i won't get a i won't shoot 
I think people have this really... I can't, um, just, I can't understand it either. Well, I Coming from you, a private property well, background. Exactly. And I, I suppose that's the context. But going to a state forest, I think people think that it's like shooting fish in a barrel. and The barrel's it, the size of New South Wales. It's, it's not. It's a, um, it's, and, and I think you, you made a really good point there, Usher, is that if you think you're walking out and you're shooting a deer in your first go in a state forest... It or, happens. Hey, hey but, look, it could. And it happens. It happens, it. but... It's, it's the chances of it happening. It's and, the exception to the rule, not and the rule. And closer to Sydney, the harder it is. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely, uh, there's a two-ridge rule. If you can get two ridges from Sydney, you go over the Blue Mountains and go over <laughs> another one, there's a lot less hunters. And and I think that's, you know, for if, if you're you're thinking you're walking out there, and as it, it, it can happen, but it's not the reality for most people. And, you know, I love sitting on the Facebook groups and seeing someone post that's taken them 10 years to get a buck. Um, you know, for me, I, I sit there and think about their journey that they've persisted for ten years. Good on them! Like that's that's a real positive because, you know, in this day and age, I think everyone's to to run before they crawl. And um, you know, for, for me, hunting it has not been like that, and I don't love it any less. And I'm not, you know, I, I'm always excited about planning the hunt and when I'm getting back out. And you know, I think if you if you're not thinking like that, geez, it it could be a very frustrating sort of hobby. I, I'd like it probably to golf. <laughs> So I was just going to say, I know um, that's a thing too, and, and we've spoken about it before, and I've spoken to uh, a few people from the club about it, that now, um, I think it's partly because of social media, everyone sees like these blokes and women getting out there shooting these massive bucks and massive stags and stuff like that, and they're going, yeah, I want, I want a bit of that. And the truth is we are living in the golden age of deer hunting in Australia. There's never been better opportunity to hunt deer, but um, Dodge... What did you start with? You know, the, the farm pests, rabbits, foxes, yep. that sort of stuff under a spotlight. Yep. And, and unfortunately, um, I do see a lot of people ask on the Facebook groups, oh, where can I go and shoot a few rabbits in a state forest? And um, most of us reply, um, well, you'll see them on the drive out in the dark. Um, there's ac- it's actually pretty hard to hunt rabbits in a state forest unless you, you find a good patch. And as where the, the reverse is kind of true on private property, you can – you can spotlight you you're hunting on good pasture there's a lot of rabbits and stuff and that's where a lot of aussie hunters um have started you know with the the small game and cut their teeth on that and um i know everyone wants to shoot a deer but man hunting rabbits can be challenging it's my favorite small game they're so reactive yeah and um they're sometimes they're more switched on than deer um, because of mixo-colisi virus, that sort of thing, their numbers aren't as high as what they used to be. So you might go out. I think I went out a few weeks ago and I saw more deer than rabbits on a private property and the rabbits were very flighty and the deer were very quiet. So yeah. it, it really is one of those things that if you can cut your teeth on rabbits um, and build up that experience, uh, it's going to make you a better hunter. Learn to crawl before you walk. I know we've been talking about state forest fair bit but there's a few other modes of entry too is some um you know guided options pay to play properties where you uh you know if you're just getting into hunting um there's a couple of websites and companies that um book out properties that have some amount of game on them whether it be a lot or a little generally closer towards a little but um you know you pay a per night fee you go and camp and it's the you know it's like hunting a state forest but without the other people so you've, you've still got a steep learning curve because you've never been on this property before. The farmer might say, oh, there were some goats over there last week. or, But, um, you know, there's a few different ports of entry and um, State Forest is definitely one of them. Um, pay-to-play properties is another one. Or if, if you've got a little less time and a little more money saved up, book a guide. It's our job to find the animals. It's our job to teach you how to hunt it 
and then it definitely increases your chances, um, probably unrealistically, which is fair, I suppose, to say. But our job is to find you an animal. Um, it's not always the case. It's definitely not fish in a barrel, but it's a much smaller barrel than a, than a state forest. And that's the purpose of – you do pay money for it. You pay either guide rates or just a package price. And there's a definitely a high chance you'll come home with something, whether it be a meat animal or a trophy animal. And there, yeah, there definitely are um – your guided hunt doesn't have to be for the you know sixteen point red stag. It no. can be go and get guided for a meat fallow deer or goats or something like that. Yeah, definitely, um, it's a lot more accessible, right? And yeah, and you're not just coming home with antlers. You know, I might be able to take you on a say. I used to do guided fox drives. Like, um, it doesn't have to be large game. It can be small game, and you'll get as much out of that as you want to get out of it. If you want to just ride along and say, you know, show me where the animals are, let's shoot them. That's one thing. But if you go along there with an open mind and a heap of questions, guides don't get to where they are without learning a lot. So ask them questions and it will exacerbate your learning curve or soften the curve, I suppose. So it's, uh, you know, you'll learn a lot more in a short amount of time. It won't be such a hard drive when you do go to a state forest. And one thing I learned recently on this state forest hunt, I haven't traditionally done a lot of looking for sign. Like, these guys spend a lot of time walking around State Forest looking down, whereas I'm generally on properties where there's already lots of animals, so I spend a lot of time looking up. And that was an eye-opener for me, but it's not it's something I'll take on board and, and spend a lot more time watching and looking at. And, you know, you look for footprints and things, but I don't need to look for footprints because I'm on 1,500 acres that's got 70 or 80 deer on it. I've just got to find them. They're here somewhere. So, it's um, yeah, I'm still learning. It's, um, it's never stopped learning, but there's definitely different points of entry into hunting for new beginners. Now, I think this is great about this podcast because, you know, hearing that is really interesting for me because, you know, I, I've only had state forests and I've gone on one pay-to-play property. So, you know, hearing you guys go, oh, honing your skills with small game, I've never had that opportunity because I just never had access. Um, so, you know, even that one we went out to, to pay-to-play, you know, it was a really good learning curve because we I was able to throw the, the spotlight on and have a bit of a crack there. It looked didn't work out, but it was a very long grass, so it was hard to see anything but you know it was still the the sort of the chance to have a try and have a crack at it and and try something new um but you know for for those people out there that don't have all that access as well it's still it's still a great hobby and it's still great to to do and you know i always say there's more than one way to skin a cat and you know just do the best you can um with what you got is is sort of been my motto so i've got some great local properties that when I say local, I'm Southern Highlands, New South Wales based, but all we shoot on there is rabbits. They'll be anywhere from five to 12 acres with semi-domestic properties. And I've taken, there's probably six or seven guys from the club plus other guys outside the club. And I just take them out and shoot rabbits. It's so fun. It's easy because you do it after work. You don't have to, but I think like Kyle said, it's, uh, we're living in the golden, golden age for deer at the moment. And I think the, the joy and, and also the skill of shooting rabbits is nearly being not lost, but if you go out a lot of state forests and things, a lot of people wouldn't shoot a rabbit because they're deer hunting. If you go on a private property, they wouldn't shoot a fox because they're deer hunting. Like uh, it's yeah, I was going to bring up foxes. Yeah, foxes are a whole nother. I, foxes are a bit of my weakness. I'm terrible at them. Man, like, I love it. I cut yeah, my I, teeth. Cut I, my teeth on foxes. I um, enjoy doing it, but I'm just terrible at it. I miss. Yeah, well, what's your go to? Is it you know like for me? Not, uh, I've shot a few foxes, but not not a, a massive amount. But what are you, you know, calling them in using a shotgun? Yeah, yeah whistling. I mentioned before, like when I got my license, I was living out Broken Hill, and I was really lucky. Um, 
one day I was going into the gun shop to pick up a new 17 HMR um, that I was buying, but I didn't yet really have a property to shoot on. I was just shooting at the local range and um, I met a bloke there, just started talking to him and he was picking up a gun for his kid or something. He was just getting his licence and getting into it. Started talking and it turned out he was on a, a property not far from town that was, you know, um, a sizable property and I just put it on him and said, mate, would you mind if I came out for a shot? And he said, I wouldn't mind at all. And I sort of developed that relationship from there and um, used to go out there basically whenever I liked, um, just give him a call and off I'd go. I really, I learnt so much going out to that property, um, you know, weekend after weekend and I'd go out and I'd do the morning hunt walking amongst the um, salt scrub and then I would sit and I'd whistle foxes then maybe shoot a couple or maybe not shoot, maybe miss a few. I had a few of those mornings as well. And then I'd, you know, put out some cans or a box or something and do some target practice. And, you know, shooting at the range off the bench is one thing, but shooting off the bottom of your car, shooting off your knee, shooting freestanding, shooting off a bipod, all that sort of stuff is a skills that you really um, need to develop. And if your your experiences with shooting, uh, shooting off a bench and then you go into a state forest and then, all of a sudden you don't have your bench and you're trying to get a lean on a tree, trying to take a knee, trying to get a bipod, whatever, it's going to be a real difficulty um, to get your head around it and make that leap. So, yeah, I started going out to that property and, like I said, there were, there were rabbits around. There were the occasional pigs. Uh, there were goats that they mustered um, for money because, they you know, they're worth a lot of money these days. And so that kind of left foxes for me. So I started getting into this fox whistling and, and bought a tenorfield um, style whistle um, stuff eBay or whatever and started with that and had some 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 success with that and then I doubled it up with I think it's called the best fox call pro or something like that I think they're a UK based company but they do sell them here and it's a little um, sort of reed whistle squeaker sort of thing it's like two bars of plastic with a sort of reed in the middle and you put it in your mouth and you bite down on it and s- sort of squeak through it so I'd use the Tenerfield whistle to really call the dinner bell and it was really loud and I'd blow that for a couple of minutes and then I'd transfer to this more sort of squeaky um, whistle and that thing really brings them in. It sounds, if you've ever heard a rabbit, um, like I once saw a rabbit got eaten by a goanna and it sounded exactly like this whistle and it really brings them in and, you know, shooting foxes in those situations you always have the direction that you think they're going to come, up, you know, up this um, gully or from that patch of scrub, and I guarantee you they will not come from that direction. They'll come from behind you, um, you know, they'll come from the side. Two will come out at once, and you have to think pretty quick um, about how you're going to shoot that and um, taking unsupported shots and trying to shoot off your knee and all that sort of stuff, and it, it really does sharpen your skills. So Definitely, they're not a game that should be taken for granted. They're, no. They're cunning, cunning as yeah, fox, yeah. sly fox. Especially a real, a, a big, you know, old one in full winter coat, you know, like they're, they're pretty smart. But the, the other benefit with foxes is if you go back and tell your farmer I shot 10 rabbits, he'd be like, oh, cool. If you tell him you shot two foxes, the smile on their face is ear to ear. It's uh, Yeah, especially if they're a sheep farmer. Yeah, you know. anything out with livestock, it's, you know, it's a benefit to get rid of them. So. Yeah, and, and environmentally too, you know, the amount of um, small mammals and birds and that that they eat. And the other um, bonus to that is cats will come into the whistle too. I've shot a few cats off the whistle. I know it's a bit of a sore point for some people, but, um, you know, as hunters, I think we realise the damage that they do and I personally love shooting cats. You weren't the main street of Broken the, Hill either. No, no. Um, you know, wasn't shooting them in the collar. 
and uh, yeah, like doing that and knowing that you're d- doing your bit for the environment, and, and like you say, the the farmer's happy if you can knock over a few foxes. It's yeah, good experience, really good experience. And the, the main thing is, it's it, I liken it to fishing with a lure. You know, like you're attracting them. So you could have days that you go out, and you know, if you're a deer hunter, you're going to glass his face and look for deer, and you see nothing. If you go out fox whistling, you're calling them into you. You know, you're providing opportunities for yourself and you're providing opportunities to learn. I really enjoy the whole topic of uh, animals that respond to a call. Because it's not just foxes. Do you do it too at the right time of year? Um, rabbits got no interest in it. But it's uh, if you can imitate or outsmart an animal by calling it in and it's just, it takes hunting to another level because you're, you're not only just finding them and, and harvesting them, you're, you're pulling them into you. You're bringing them in. Um, you're getting down to their level and, and getting them in close and it's a real yeah you've, you're sort of outwitting them and um, yeah in a, in a natural I actually um, last time I went fox whistling I um, actually no last time was with you guys and we didn't call anything in but last time I went fox whistling on private property I um, started whistling and a rabbit did hop out of the long grass and no fox came and I thought maybe a fox had spooked it out into the shorter grass and no fox came out so the rabbit got the 22 oh well there you go there's a first but uh at least I can eat the rabbit. Did you? Yeah. So I just thought from there, um, we should really get into this question of, of why you hunt. And um, as I sort of um, alluded to before, why you hunt can can change over time. Um, but Matt, what's your story? You mentioned um, getting into shooting and, and target shooting and that sort of stuff. And how what made you want to you know go from punching paper to actually dropping animals? Um, did you want to talk about that? Yeah, for sure. I think, I, I don't know, not, not that I'm a hippie or anything like that, but um, I've always loved shooting and I've always loved the outdoors. And then, to, you know, I think it was just a natural progression to say, well, hey, instead of shooting at paper, as you said, like the skill just sitting at a bench, like there is a lot of skill to it, don't get me wrong, but it's, I wanted more of a challenge and, and a reward. You can't take that paper home to eat. Well, you could, I suppose, but it wouldn't taste very good. Um, but, you know, g- going out into the bush and with the potential that you could bring home, you know, enough meat for a few months and, you know, I know there's all these buzzwords about organic, free range, all that, but, you know, knowing where it came from is a big one for me and it's the same reason we grow, you know, we grow our own our veggies. You know, I know what poison I don't use on it. I know where it's coming from. I know what, what the go is. And I also like the effort, that the reward that when you, you know, I, I don't like being, I've never been a person that gets, that's had anything given to me on a silver platter and, Everything I've earned and that's, that just drives me for hunting is that, you know, as I said, I've been out, you know, in, in state forest for probably, you know, close to six years and I'll put my hand up and say, I haven't shot a deer, haven't, haven't got a goat. Like, I'm not ashamed of that in, in the slightest. It's, it's something that every time I come back, I go, that's all right, I'm going to go next time. Gonna, that, that's the end goal. That's the, that's the journey that I'm on that, you know, especially in this day and age, I, I want to be... I guess providing for my family and doing something that I enjoy, which is the shooting element and being outdoors and camping, and you know, it's, it's just all, like it's all wrapped into one. And there's the potential for us to get some great meat. And I love cooking. I love smoking meat. You know, it's it's just so it just ties it all in for me. So that challenge, that potential goal of getting meat, that that for me 
is a big one. And I haven't gone down the path of sort of being a um, trophy hunter as as yet, but I will say, and I know this will be another podcast, but um, that ballot hunt that I mentioned earlier, the last day, and I'm, I'm still hung up on it a bit and, and burning a little bit, but the day before... I got the, the trail cam pics of a nice buck and I spent a lot of time combing over where I was and found rubs and scrapes and, and I sort of knew where he was going and that last morning that I had found his bed and um, I got his antlers over the top of, of the ridge when I was 30 metres off his bed waiting for him to come in and I had the wind right and bang, the wind shifted but, and I saw his nose go up because all I could see was his antlers. And that's the first buck I've ever seen, you know, in, in not at a farm or anything like that, but in the bush. And I'll tell you what, what a feeling. And I just looked at it and just went, that was that was sensational. So I was sort of looking at that going, wow, like that, I'll never forget that. I, you know, I, I can still see his antlers over that, you know, on the top of that ridge. And then his nose go up because that bloody wind changed. But, you know, for me, I just went, whoa, okay, you know, meat's great. But that that got me excited. That yeah, got you have to chalk that up as a success, right? Did, like, oh, you can get a bullet off, but like... The, the yeah. fact I, I, I found... Everything yeah. I was after and found him. And that yeah. took you eight years to get there. Like you've got eight years of practice to, or six or whatever it was. Yeah. To, you know, looking at science, so you knew what a bed looked like. You knew what a scrape looked like. You, you know, followed all the puzzle pieces and put it together in one day, just happened to be the last day you hunt. So, well, that's it. And, you know, like. If it was two days, three days earlier. Oh, and, and that's what I, I said that to the wife when I got home. I just went, oh, man, like. You know, and and reflecting on it, I probably didn't. I probably could have done some things different in the hunt, and probably explored a bit more. I, I found some really good areas, great sign. You know, I think, um, you know, there was seeing deer within the first three hours of my first morning. Um, probably restricted myself too much to sit on those game trails, and but there was so much sign. It was quite the opposite to Ganang where we were, um, where we hunted together. It was there, there was sign everywhere, and you know, I, I, I saw eight eight or nine deer comfortably. Um, so it was a, a cracker state forest and it was a cracking trip. But, you know, to, to be able to put all those things together, that was a massive win for me, as you said. I Even though I didn't get the, the end goal, uh, you know, that for me to go, here's the sign, here's where they're travelling, get through, find everything, find multiple deer, see multiple deer, you know, as I, I sort of mentioned before, um, you know, setting up to glass one day and there's a, a, a doe and a fawn 10 metres from me. I didn't even say, it was quite high high weeds and everything and they just sort of popped the head up. I couldn't even see the saw the fawn's little um, you know, ears going away, but that, that's all I could see of it. It was it was that high. But all those experiences going, hey, you know what, I'm on the right track. Well journey's good. I'm on the path. It's um hasn't happened yet, but you know what? It, it's gonna and that's Yeah, it's all going in the right direction. Yeah, hundred percent. Like it's it's I'm happy. Like it's interesting you said you didn't get the end goal. Because I, I think I read it like a children's book that's got multiple endings. Like, they can all be good outcomes, but, you know, at that point, your end goal was to shoot him, and you didn't. But if you didn't see him, you still reach your end goal. You had a great trip. You saw Correct. You saw deer. Yeah, yeah. So I, th- I think it's... Um, I think it's more a success. I probably shouldn't say the end goal. The end, the end goal is to obviously get meat in the freezer for me. Yeah, you didn't um, get the bonus round. The bonus correct, points. Correct, but the, the trip, the journey... It was a success. You know, it was, it and was it, great. And it gives you some confidence that you've been doing the right things. Correct. And I think that's that's a big one because it can get disheartening. It, as, it as is as really important, time. I think, like for your brain... Um, to, to have little wins. To have those little wins... 
and um, it's one of those things I think success breeds success. Yeah. And that's where I think it's really important for new hunters to actually psychologically not get focused on the dropping an animal. It's the am I finding the game trails? Am I finding the fresh sign? Am I finding the rubs, the scrapes, all that sort of stuff, and ticking that up as success and putting that away in your brain as and that's why I spoke spoke about my wife earlier. Shot a big buck on a first non deer hunting experience. We weren't even out. We were out chasing pigs, so she didn't get that what you're talking about that experience. She's had it since on other animals. But it's it's really important. Like I think you mentioned it earlier too. A, a state forest animal is worth a lot more than some say it's worth ten of a private animal. Like for you to get that is a huge. Any any animal in a state forest is a huge achievement. So even just to see one that close is is pretty amazing. Oh, hundred percent. And that's you know, I, I, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm, for me coming back, I was on a high. Like it was not an unsuccessful thing. It was just to put it in perspective too. It's a state forest you've never been to. Correct. You can't always get to because it's hunted on a ballot system. Yep. And how big was the area? It's decent. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was, I couldn't tell you the size, but it was not a small area. You know, so. It's a big area and you found, you know. Uh, yeah. There was a lot of study going in beforehand and had a game plan and the game plan worked. Like, you know, where I picked, where I wanted to go, I had my, my GPS coordinates, um, everything there was was on point. And, and, and I guess that was probably the happiest I was because you know it, I'd spent a lot of work. time I'd done the, the pre-work before getting to a brand new forest and you know I, I said to the wife I said I'd be so confident that I could replicate that now like that I, I'd done these things they paid off and it has been a progression and it has been you know picking up those little things from the first couple of goes in the state forest where you know, similar sort of things. Here's where I think they'd be moving. Here's what I think. Oh, there's sign. Oh, I'm on the right trail. And then progressing that all the way up. That that was the first time I'd seen some rubs. And, you know, and, and got the trail cameras out. I was Yes, I was there for a couple of days, so I got the trail cameras out. But picking up a couple of deer in the trail cams too, going, hey, I'm on the right track. Seeing them, you know, even spooking a few. You know, that, that there, I, I couldn't be happier. And then coming back, obviously, you know, reflecting on it. This, geez, there were so many things I could have done a bit better or changed or, you know, things I learned actually from from um, from the, the one of the conversations at the campsite for our club trip. Um, I can't remember who it was, but they were talking about um, using a little bit of eucalyptus oil in a, in a spray bottle and some water. Was that you, Usher? No, it wasn't. I think that was um, Craig maybe. It could be. So I thought I'd give it a go. I thought, oh, you know what, I'm going to give it a crack. And so got up there, I think it was on the second day or third day. It was when I got that doe, that doe and that fawn, I'd sprayed myself with eucalyptus oil and she was 10 metres away with a fawn and it went for about a minute. And, you know, I, I, I probably should have pulled the rifle up. It was next to me because I was setting up the, the seat. But I, I sort of sat there. She had no idea what it was. And she was just, we, we had eyes locked and I'm sitting there going, when's she going to run? And I'm just watching and, you know, it, it just didn't happen. And I'm like, she's either never seen a hunter before or that's could have done a bit of a good job here with my scent that she doesn't know what's going on. Yeah, so scent control is, is you're just a weird so looking important. tree. That too, fat yeah. one maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what do they say? They'll... Um, See you three times, see you twice, but they'll only smell you once, and they'll they'll take off. You know, yeah. especially in a forest. Well, I saw that buck. That buck did that as yeah. soon as his nose went up. Um, I, I felt it. I felt that wind on the back of the, the neck, and the, the nose went up because I saw the antlers start to shift backwards, and and I knew it had been sprung. And, nothing, um, you could, nothing you could do for that. Nah, nah. It, it was just swirling wind, and you know, like I, I reflect on that. And go, you know what? That's hunting. 
that's nature. That's you know, it gives me a greater respect for for you know my ancestors and the people before us. Like I look at our tech, as I said, I, I love me tech, and I look at it and go, these blokes that were were you know trailblazing before us that didn't have those things that you know we're shooting off iron sights or you know you know even throwing a spear or a boomerang you know like I yeah, just you, you don't have to look at it, yeah like that far back to no. you know hunting iron sights and, and yeah. stuff and like even we were talking about it in the forest dodge um not having gps yeah we said could you imagine hunting this forest without a gps how easily you get turned around in the pines. Just a bit of paper. Wasn't that the requirement when I, I think started? I think back in the day, yeah, it was just paper, map, and a compass. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I don't know how you do that. Like, it's... I've got a full GPS where I can nearly ring home and check on the boys that are working. Yeah. It's, you know. But, you know, speaking of that, that's a good learning curve too. Like, I look at that and go, that's amazing. Like, that that inreach and having the ability to, to talk to, to the loved ones or if you get in trouble. Um, and I know we'll probably go... We'll have a podcast there with... You know, a pretty good story of someone getting into trouble and, and a bit of a, a background to that. But, um, you know, what is the what is the price for that? You know, like being able to, if you Eight, get in trouble. No, yeah, I know that. I, but for I me, that's invaluable. Yeah. Like that's probably the next big thing I'm going to look at on. I, I think it's really dangerous, you know, in a bad way um, in that um, you feel like, I don't know, when I get out in the bush – I like the idea that I don't have phone reception. I have a PLB, so I know if I do get into trouble, I can spring that and somebody's coming to get me, um, hopefully. Hopefully it works. Um, but I feel like if I had the inreach, I'd constantly be checking on what's going on at home, how are the kids, what's going on with so-and-so and all that sort of stuff, and it would be a distraction. And I just I love that immersive experience of being out for the hunt. Um I don't know, my wife's probably going to be kicking me when she hears this bit of the podcast um, and she'll be asking how much the inReach is. $800. Yeah. I'll lend you mine. Yeah. But and no, I get that. I understand that. Um, I mean, I purchased mine when I was overseas. There's multiple reasons for it. Being in reach of family is one thing. Um, but it tracks where I'm walking. I drop points. I you know can mark rubs, scrapes, mark where the truck is. Um, I can mark where we shot an animal from, where we've picked it up from. And but also when you have clients that you're responsible for too, that's that's another dimension. Yeah, and, and we'll get into that in another podcast with the difference between sort of PLBs and inreaches and things. But um, yeah, I, I think the technology, I appreciate what you're saying, that it um, doesn't lessen the experience, but it just complicates things and, and dilutes your immersion in the outdoors. I mean, I don't use mine for, I don't, sorry, I don't talk to home like, like while we're hunting so much, but mostly just, you know, back at camp and, and things. Um, but even just to have it on the basic plan, which just gives you, you know, bugger all text, but allows you to track your movements and uh, mark, you know, where animals you've seen them, uh, where you've shot things. Sometimes you need to go back the next day. And again, I'm talking overseas stuff where, you know, it might be a one day ride from camp and you've got to go back the next day. Or we shot something on dark. I had no idea where camp was. So I just followed my breadcrumbs in the dark. We cut a trail through, you know, six foot high elders. But um, yeah, no, I agree with what you're saying about it, um, sort of you're diluting the experience. Well, well, the only other thing I'd say to that is, have you ever had an experience which is a pretty close call? I I personally um, haven't, but I do know people who have had close calls. Um, so it, it is always in the back of my mind. Like when I go bush, uh, we are talking before about pack setups, you know, and I run, I just have a, a belt with a knife, my PLB and a little pouch with a um, like snake bite bandage in it. 
and that's like my basic go anywhere. Like, oh, I'm just going to park the ute and um, walk up to the top of this hill and just glass the next ridge. That comes with me. That and my bino harness. You know, my pack doesn't always come with me, but the PLB, snake bite bandage, knife, always with me. I carry more than that in in my bino harness. Bino harness is great. But we I carry we could do a whole episode on bino harnesses. Your whole belt. Like in my bino harness, I have snacks, gloves, um, spare batteries, spare bullets, um, a PLB, the binos, knives, and oh, a headlamp. Um, so I carry... You know what's on your day pack, just on, on my binder harness plus my backpack. But again, different different situations and scenarios. But I think it also comes down to past experience. Like for me, you know, when I was oh god, probably seventeen, not hunting related, but we we were out, you know, dumb kids. We took a two wheel drive Mitsubishi Triton down a fire trail, and you know, deep, geez, we did some good four wheel drive. And I'm not going to lie, because I have no idea how we got in there, and we were we were pretty deep, and no no phone reception, no PLB, none of that crap, and. There was a bushfire coming over the ridge and it was blowing straight at us. And, um, you know, we we were, were walking and it was just lucky enough that I got the one ounce of phone reception in Kangaroo Valley and literally I had to stand in this spot and it had to be at shoulder height. If it went up or down, I lost it and we were able to, to get out a call to the coppers and give them sort of where we were. And they came in and, and towed us out. And from, from that sort of experience, I sort of look back at that and go, that could have turned bad real quick. And, you know, um, it, it could have been bad real quick if, if when we called we didn't get on to anyone or the wrong people were sent out. And I think we had that chat, Dodge, yeah, we'll saying... we about that again, but PLBs, that's, that's my issue with them. They'll give you someone's location, but that doesn't tell them what's the problem mm. and what, what they need to send. So yeah, that's a nice feature with the inreach, isn't it? Like, um, what, sort of like, what's the nature of your emergency? Yeah, like so you, you hit SOS and, it, and then they or, send you a text yeah. and say, "Have you run out of beer, or have you broken your leg?" Like, it's um, I can say, you know, car's broken down middle of nowhere, so they'll send the police, or um, broken leg, they'll send ambulance. Whereas PLB first response is going to be police, just because there's more of them and they're generally more locally available. And then they get there and then they assess the situation and say, oh, you've broken your leg three hours ago. So it's, um, yeah, anyway, that's a topic for another conversation. But I think getting back to your, your question about have you ever been in a bad situation, I alluded to it earlier, stuck on the side of a mountain and end up with hypothermia. And that wasn't a fun time. There was some poor decisions that led to that on my behalf, but also someone else's behalf. And we'll talk about that further in, at a later date. But it wasn't a great situation, but it turned into a good one because now my pack is full of stuff that if I or anyone else in my group, and again, you mentioned before, I'm responsible for other people when we're guiding. I need to carry enough to help me and help them at the same time. And I do that. My first aid kit's pretty extensive. I've hunted with a fair few doctors and every time they leave, their tip to me is usually a little bit of money and the rest of their first aid kit. Because they have stuff in their first aid kit that we can't get over the counter. Um, So I've got some pretty interesting stuff in there that can get out of most situations i don't know how to use most of it but um i'll give you the right drug i hope to uh, yeah. knock, knock the pain out you're a nice good person to hunt with so so Cole, what about you like we you know touched on on, on my reasons of, of why i do what i do and or shifted so what about yourself yeah like i said um always had that interest in hunting um but really getting into it as an adult and like we said the barrier to getting into hunting is pretty high you know it's um tests and gun safes and um, firearms themselves and ammunition, lots of stuff. It's pretty expensive, so you really have to want to do it. 
so for me, the drive that really sort of put me over the edge, you know, where I'd, I'd really been saying, um, I'll get my gun license one day, I'll, I'll get in the shooting one day, it was it's really that wanting to take control of, of access to food. I remember pretty clearly one night driving home along the, the M5 and being behind, you know, one of those trucks that's transporting chickens to the slaughterhouse or what, wherever they're going and the feathers are just streaming out like a broken pillow. And just thinking, man, what a horrible existence for that animal, you know, um, for for us to be able to go drive through KFC and get a get a feed without really thinking about it. And um, it really put me down a path. And there were a few other things going on at the time that um, along that similar theme, and really got me thinking about animal welfare and you know farming practices and that sort of stuff. And like I said before things things in australia compared to other countries are actually pretty good when it comes to animal welfare from what i understand um depending on what species you're talking about but i i really think about that and, and it's maybe it's me anthropomorphizing that and putting you know that human lens on it and saying um well if i was an animal i would want to be a deer out roaming the woods free and you know doing what i'm doing living my life until you know cop a bullet through the ribs um and it's all over pretty quickly you know that that's our perspective on it and obviously an animal i don't know can't really compute that but um i'm sure they'd prefer not to get shot they, uh, definitely um, that's that's why they smell us and run but me looking at it especially you know and australia has a a different situation to a place like the us or the uk you know like us and, and new zealand are similar in that most of the animals that we hunt are introduced species so there is this level of like I don't feel as bad for killing an introduced species because they're not supposed to be there to start with, but still you are taking a life and you you have to be responsible for that and it's your responsibility as a hunter to do your, your best job to do that ethically. Um, but I I still look at it you know if I could be um, a deer, um, you know feeding through the forest or feeding on the pasture or something like that, and living free and then just it all ends pretty quick with a bullet or be a, a cow, pretty good life in the pasture, but then pretty stressful journey to the, the abattoir and have all the animals being killed in front of you and all that sort of stuff. It's pretty horrific. And and I'm not taking a shot at, you know, that sort of process either because if you're going to feed everybody in society, you have to um, sort of mechanise it and do it on, on the whole scale. But for me, I felt like I wanted to be responsible for that from start to finish and, and that's how I got into it. Um, and that's why I really went down the sort of deer root and and also goats as well goat meat is delicious rabbits you know they they eat well but it's a lot of work for a little bit of meat i've only recently just taken a pig that the meat's in the freezer at the moment i'm going to cook it up soon because previously most of the pigs i'd shot were out west and you you generally don't eat those because they're feeding on carrion so yeah meat really has been the driver for me to get into it but as I, i mentioned before like um the more i get out the more i realize that just you know as human beings we we have deep in us that drive to hunt um i mean it's why we have language it's the way it's the reason why we we have the bodies that we do that we can go long distances that we can um sweat um in in the heat and track down animals and that you know our relationship with dogs you know a lot of people like to pick on pig hunters and and dogs and it's all pretty brutal but um if it wasn't for hunters and and their relationship with dogs and going from wolves to domestic dogs we wouldn't have the dogs that we have now because hunting is what you know brought those two species together in the relationship that we have with them and so yeah moving forward on on my journey like the more i do it the more i realize it's just the 
just enjoying hunting and I, I feel like it's taken me a few years to actually get to that point to say to people like you know what? I actually enjoy hunting I enjoy everything about it what you're saying before Matt about uh, working hard for a meal man I've had some good good feeds in in some nice restaurants nothing too fancy I'm not that sort of guy but um some some good feeds but nothing tastes as good as something that you've shot and processed and butchered and cooked you know when you do that it's just next level you know i know like the first year that i shot was um, down in a in a valley and um, right on dark and we dropped the guts out of it and um carried it back out on my back straight back up this hill and it was a big carry out and just the next day cutting the back straps off that and frying a bit of that up in the pan just like a bit of butter and salt and it's like the best thing you've ever eaten it's I, I get it. I, yeah. I, I, I just I reflect on that and, and think the exact same thing. Is that the amount of times I think back to you know leaving a whatever piece of meat that was in a, a little pl- you know cardboard tray with some plastic over it and it went past the expiry date and I just tossed it and didn't even think about it to you know f- shooting a few roos and you know I, I love kangaroo. It's one of my favourite things to eat and you know. I, I don't waste a skerrick of it. Like it, it's all consumed, and the same deal. You when you're working hard for it, you don't want to waste it. And I just find, you know, in such a throwaway society that we live in, I think we, you know, it'd be great for more people to have that. Like, I had to work hard for this, not this money sort of thing. That oh yeah, I've, I've worked for me money, and then I'll pay for it at the supermarket. But you know, going out, sourcing it, spending the hours that it takes, butchering it. Like, you know, there's so yeah, just, and, many And butchering guys. too, like, people think it's like, oh, yeah, you just go and cut the animal up and chuck it in some freezer bags. Like, man, that's a skill that you have oh. to – you learn and develop. And um, How long did it take us the other night? Oh, what, three blokes to do a whole deer? And yeah. that was just to mince it, not to actually, like, do it in the carts. Like, yeah, it was, it was a night of work. Cheese Dodge, you also copped it on social media for your butchering skills, mate. I'll throw that out there. Well, I'm a butcher. Uh, butcher's an interesting term because if you're really good at your trade, you're a butcher. If you're terrible at your trade, you're a butcher. It's it's an interesting word, but... Uh, you're just yeah. a dodgy butcher, mate. I'm just a dodgy butcher. I was just trying to help some people and there's some people out there that don't want to help other people. Uh, and look, that's life. You're always going to have haters and, and, and that's a part I'll of it. i say that as well. Like I'm, I'm self-taught. I don't know everything. I do things the way that I do, that they work. Uh, people I've been with have showed me pointers and I've taken them on board and they work too. I don't know everything. I know how I do things and it works for myself and my family. keeps us, our foods, sanitary and safe. And uh, Yeah, I'm happy with the way I do things. But uh, Haven't gotten sick yet, right? Not often, no. Just some flu tonight. But uh, no, not, not from food. I've been sick from beavers. Yeah, just, uh, I was just thinking about like butchering and, and social media and stuff. Yeah. Like it's one thing to go out and learn to shoot an animal. But like we say, um, the hard work starts when you drop the animal if, it, if it's a you know deer or a goat or something or a pig, you know, and that's again the beauty of rabbits. There, you know, like you you shoot a rabbit, you nick in the back, strip the skin off, take the guts out, you're done. Chuck it in the esky. You, you know, don't get deer, much for it. Yeah, but you don't get much for it. But it's you know it's it's good quick fun. Um, but deer, it, it's hard work. And I remember the first deer that I shot hanging in Dad's shed, and um, the next day I pulled up Scott Ree on YouTube. Um, Scott Ree R E A. If you haven't watched his videos, you should. Um, and learning from his videos how to butcher a deer and had the laptop next to me and was like, what the, the blood play and pause, yeah, play, play pause. pause, play pause, watch that scene again. And it took me, I think, two days to, to butcher a whole deer because it was, you know, doing every cut and learning how to do it. And it was a great learning experience. Uh, and it's a, it's a real skill. 
to really utilize the resource you should learn how to to butcher an animal properly or at least to to some level of efficiency yeah i, I will say that one of the, the one of the best things i did was um the uh, game harvesting accreditation through tafe to to really see all elements of it to see you know learn about bacteria and how it gets on meat and how it goes you know what you can do to reduce the chances how long you've sort of got temperatures time you know all those things so that that was one of the probably that was a really good thing for me to go through and you know one of the greatest things out of COVID because it was a free TAFE course but um you know getting that qualification and you know there's only so much you can learn from YouTube and you know going through and looking at the, the Australian standards and the food safety standards and why they suggest you do what you do so um that was a a really positive for me because you're right once 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 you do pull that trigger and you get that animal geez the, the work starts uh, you know and you don't want to waste it like, i think that's a big one for me is that you know if you if you're going to take a life I, I want to use all of it and you know really do eat from from nose to tail um you know from my perspective but um dodge what about you that's why i appreciate this group we've got going on because we my outlook on this is a little bit different. Um, traditionally not a meat hunter. I've definitely, earlier in my career, left meat in the bush. Um, it's not something I do now, but it's definitely something I have done. I mentioned earlier I went to Africa as sort of one of my first hunting journeys, hunting trips, and that's purely a, a trophy hunting trip. And that sort of started me off in that path. I um, it's, it's hard to sort of put into words, but I do enjoy killing things. Um, I enjoy hunting things. It's, uh, it's not everyone's cup of tea. Um, I've said that a lot, and my next comment is I don't drink tea. So it's, uh, it, doesn't, yeah, it doesn't suit everyone, but I'm not, a, I'm not ashamed of it. I run my own business. It's not uncommon for me to be randomly talking to customers and they ask what I do, and I don't tell them I'm a fencer. I tell them I'm a hunter. It's, uh, it, you know, it, it's cost me some work over the years. It's, um, it's unappreciated by some people, but there's a genuine interest, and, and I, enjoy, I enjoy harvesting animals. I enjoy outsmarting them, calling them in. Pulling that trigger, traditionally being this, you know, private land hunting, it's there's a lot more trigger pulling than there is walking. Definitely increasing my chances, but yeah, you know, I, I enjoy the challenge of, of finding private properties too. That's a that's a hard one on itself, and and when you get that, it you know, the, you increase your chances by doing that. And for me, I really enjoy hanging something on the wall. It, it's um, you know, hunting something. I'm mostly focused on you know, mature males for antlers, horns, whatever it is, and guiding too. You know, people, they pay money to go and shoot meat animals, but they're paying money for inches. They're paying money for antlers. They're paying money for horns. My love for it is to respect an animal by hanging on the wall. You know, you can eat an animal and that lasts how long? Two or three months. But if you're going to take the skin off a doe and make a rug out of it, hang it over your chair in the lounge, it's there forever or until the kid's rip all the hair out of it or whatever um you know if you shoot a nice buck or a stag you get it taxidermied properly that thing's going to last forever on your wall so every time i look around my my lounge room i just get memories um i said before i've got a pretty bad memory myself so that uh, you know i remember who i was with where i was uh, we name a lot of our animals on the wall basic based off who we were with they don't know that those people that we we're with but uh, if they ever come to my house i'd tell them they're just little reminders to me that the meat is a, a bonus. It's it's not my purpose. Um, I know both of you guys are, you know, and I enjoy, I enjoy eating it. Venison's not my favourite meat, I'll be honest in saying that. I do enjoy eating something that we've killed and now having a young family, uh, we definitely enjoy the cost-saving benefit of that. Um, we pulled, you know, 10 or 15 kilos of mince the other day off a, off a rutting fallow buck 
and I had it Apparently tonight. you can't eat it, Dodge Facebook expert. No, you definitely no can't good. eat it, but we had it tonight and we had migoreng noodles and, and mince and it was delicious. So, yeah, the, the meat for me is a, is a sideline bonus. It's a different end goal. Uh, I do go out and shoot four meat sometimes just to fill the freezer, but I'm lucky enough I've got properties I can do that on. So I can I can actually just go to a Coles or Woolworths property, we call it, just go shopping somewhere, click and collect if you want. Now we had that discussion on the way here, Cole, but it, um, yeah, for me, the antlers are, are the main priority, um, definitely from a guiding point of view. That's what people are paying for. Not so much inches, but, you know, the experience, and that usually culminates in harvesting a, what I'd call a trophy animal, and that, that doesn't have to be a big one. It could just be an experience uh, with an animal at the end of it. But, yeah, so my, my journey sort of led down that path. I really enjoy having others with me when we harvest those things so that the stories, you know, I'm a part of their story. They're a part of mine, and that's why we, you know, we do name the animals somewhat. But and uh, I enjoy, I look forward to show and tell time when my kids uh, bring their friends over for sleepovers and things because I'm pretty sure our lounge room looks a bit different than most people's. I, I'd love your you, you both your perspective because I, I really f- feel nowadays there's a massive disconnect, and I think Ashley, you might have said something a bit before about you know people judging hunters as being cruel and. I sort of it, it it really does baffle me, and I'm not sure if it baffles you guys, but it baffles me as to, you know, where where have they got their information from that you know shooting something through the ribs and having it go down in a couple of minutes is not as cruel as a you know a wild dog chewing on something from behind for hours while it's alive and trying to get away. I think there's such a disconnect from you know and it probably is because we now live in in such big cities and we can just go down to you know coles or woolies yours is a bit different dodge but the uh, the local coles and woolies for most people they can go and, and just grab something and you know i get it a lot too that you, i tell people what they you know that i love to hunt and you know the the, the reaction sometimes is like how can you do that you you cruel bastard and it's like well nature's cruel like you know, tell Na- tell me what part cruel. of well, 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 yeah. But nature, nature is not cruel by design. Nature is nature, and the, the emotions don't even come into it. Correct. It's yeah. not cruel. It is just is what it is. Yeah, they're doing what they got to do to survive. And the one comment people, you know, when they say, "How can you kill an animal?" I say, "Well, do you eat meat?" Yes, of course I do. Well, you're just letting someone else do the killing for you. And Kyle said that before. You know, he enjoys harvesting meat. Because he knows where it's come from. Because he's done it. It's clean. It's it's neat and tidy. And he's seen the situation it was killed in. We're eating animals that we don't know what they went through before they end up in their little cardboard box at Woolies. And yeah, so that that's the disconnect for me. People are happy for someone else to do it for them, mm. but they're not happy when we do it for ourselves. And I enjoy feeding other people game meat for one. And I'll digress and tell a quick story. On the weekend, we had a, a function at church, and we. Uh, I had to cater for there was nearly 50 people 45 people and I did three dishes I did uh, smoked beef smoked chicken smoked pork and then I called it a surprise and the people at church know what I do they know I hunt and they're inquisitive as to what it was and I said it cost a dollar twenty <laughs> and uh, anyway just the caliber <laughs> yeah no it was a but it was a local deer that was shot close to church. And they're like, oh, wow, there's deer close to here. Like, they were amazed. They didn't even know. That was the dish that was empty first. Everyone loved it. 
it was a smoked venison pulled shoulder recipe that I got from a mate of mine. Yeah, I've had almost exactly the same experience, like kids' birthday parties, and you put on a couple of crock pots for you know make make your own slider sort of thing. And the the one that there was no leftovers of was a shoulder of fallow. Yep, um, that was yeah slow cooked in a sort of barbecue sauce and pulled and. It's it's interesting to them and it's a novelty, but if if presented to them in the right way, you can change someone's mind and you can change someone's psyche and the way they think about things. So that's, like I've mentioned before, I enjoy helping people. I enjoy helping people change their perspective on what we do. Yeah, and I think as hunters, um, you know, I've heard Stephen Ranella refer to it as venison diplomacy. I think it is confronting for somebody who maybe doesn't doesn't even know that deer exist in Australia to to understand that you you hunt for antlers and and to hunt for antlers is a real simplification of what it is but if you say well I hunt for meat and hey come around for dinner or hey here's a cut of um, backstrap and it, it goes really well a bit of salt and pepper on the barbecue and cook it no more than medium rare and enjoy and it's really um your your opportunity to open people's minds to what hunting is and I don't want to get like too political or anything like that but the future of our I don't even want to use the word sport because it's it's more than a sport it's a way of life um, the future of our lifestyle depends on not so much growing hunter numbers that's that's good but just growing popular support um, or even a lack of opposition to it if you know you have um, the greens and that saying that they want to ban all forms of recreational hunting and somebody who is a staunch green supporter is talking about that and somebody else goes well you know what i know a couple of hunters and they're they're pretty nice guys and you know i've eaten wild game and And it tastes good it tastes good and they're doing the right thing by the environment and and that you know it really has a flow-on effect beyond you know your immediate friends and family you almost want to get those people and say come out somewhere where there's an overpopulation of a species and see them starving because there's not enough food on the landscape to be support that population because they've obviously never seen it and they you know and they're they're doing what they think might be best um and i appreciate that everybody has their own sort of you know perspectives and you know i think unfortunately a lot are uneducated because they haven't experienced it firsthand that's you know from conversations or reading a book and it's it's not the same but as i don't think they're even having a conversation or reading a book i think they look at it very black and white and go killing is bad and it's you know not allowing any space for nuance or discussion around it and Know, the world is not that that simple. Some some of my favourite conversations I've had with anti hunting people are the educated ones because I have no issue having a discussion with a vegan or a vegetarian that does what they do because they believe in it, they're passionate about it because they're educated. They you know they're open to listening to our opinion, although they although they don't believe in it, they believe in their own. But the discussions you can have are really you know they really open and honest from both sides and you both walk away saying you know i don't believe them like i don't i don't agree with them i, I understand yeah, agree to disagree agree to disagree but an open conversation with an anti-hunter whereas the ones you have sometimes with not uneducated but just people that aren't willing to see the other side they might not agree on it but they're just unwilling to even listen to a conversation on the other side it's very frustrating but you know, i've never hid what i do i'm open about it i'm honest about it and yeah, I've got no issue talking to anti people about it. It's um, yeah, I, I definitely think um, you know I've more respect for the the vegan 
who is committed to that way of life of saying I want to have you can't say no impact but minimal impact on the lives of animals then I do for the people who um, just last night were eating a cheeseburger from McDonald's and want to tell me that I'm you know a barbarian for what I do I definitely have a lot more time for that conversation with with a vegan or a vegetarian who's actually um, put their money where the mouth is and, and living that sort of belief on the touching on the guiding and trophy side of things Disney has been is painful attaching emotions to animals that kids watch on Dem- Sunday depends who you are Dodge because I don't know as a kid I watched Bambi and thought that was a pretty good rack on old Bambi's dad yeah well that's a that, yeah, that's a good point but a lot of people watch Disney and any animals that have been on Disney have a name have been humanised with emotion and feeling you know Dumbo and things like that Lion King especially it really has an impact on people's emotions and if you know there's no animals that I draw the line at I, if it's legal and humane I'm interested in chasing it and that you know there's some animals there elephants off the table because my wife really loves them and they're pretty expensive but you know I, I would have no interest uh, no qualm shooting a lion if if I was in the right area and it was you know for the right reasons um and it was legal but man I just know the the outcry and the the backlash that will have because it's all over Disney. I think also not just that. I think it's the media. I think it's the way it's, you know, it's it's sold. Um, you know, when do you hear about the? You know, this is a podcast within itself. But when do you hear about the the money conservation brings in? And I, I love the I love the US model. Uh, you know, I, I really wish. Australia would adopt more of it where so much money going back into buying land and sustaining land on the back of I can't remember what tax they call it but they yeah it's the, uh, the tax on um, like firearm and ammunition yeah, sales all but that the issue with the American model is that those animals are supposed to be there and I understand like it, it would be nice to have more ballots and tags and that sort of stuff and can we not do the helicopter culls right on the rut but I don't think we'll ever have an, an American model oh, in Australia. Oh, I completely agree. But geez, geez, I'd love it because even kangaroos, like you know, they're a, a sustainable resource. And it's always baffled me as to our perception. And and this is not putting farmers down or anything like that. But we we spend so much time trying to you know farm cows and, and sheep and things like that in areas that they're not designed for where kangaroos are and same as goats i suppose that, you yeah know, environmentally goats. kangaroos should be like the most eaten meat in australia 100 and you've seen in like recent years they have made it a little bit easier um, for recreational hunters to be able to help out with um, controlling numbers and to be able to take the meat off that because back in the day um well not that long ago even what they call them like the let them lie tags like you'd, yeah, you'd yeah. shoot them and leave them now I, I believe you're allowed to take meat off them is that right yeah. I, I don't yeah. really follow the Pers- thing, personal harvest of meat um, yeah. not allowed to sell it not allowed to sell it yeah um, like any other people game. can come over to your house and consume it yeah. but they're not supposed to take it home yeah. like they they should be pushing that and expanding that yeah. especially like a few good years of rain We'll hit another drought and it's it's not going to be pretty. Yeah, and I think the, the tag system on them now is fantastic. You know, the, the, the landholders only have to, you know, it's not actually physical tags and you've got to leave it there for it to be checked and things like that. It's just, a, you know, an online system which, which has really helped out. But, yeah, it's baffled me as to, you know, in a country where we do get hit by droughts, like you, you wouldn't notice it at the moment with the amount of water we've had in floods, but being hit with droughts and having an animal that is designed to cope with that that is, you know, is a good source of protein. Actually, from a health perspective, is one of the best you can get, and we don't utilize it. 
And it's always been something that baffles me. And, you know, um, the, the, the American model that I, I was sort of talking about, I appreciate that, you know, they're for animals that were there to look after and things like that. But let, let's be real here. Yeah, okay, dear referral, but they're not going anywhere. When are we ever going to get to the point? Yeah, treat them like out? a resource. Yeah, hundred percent. They're, they're here. They're not going. They're here to stay. Let's be honest. The numbers we're never getting to pigs, rabbits, foxes, you name it. They they are here to stay. So instead of you know having this grand plan that we're going to wipe them out because they're not native, instead br- embrace it and go. You know what? Let's let's look at more opportunities to use them as a sustainable resource to have an industry built around it that is self-sufficient for this country to, to make money on, have people getting quality food. You know, it's such a win-win situation. Uh, it baffles me as to why we don't look at it more from, from that country perspective. But I, I also feel that our culture um, now is a lot different. And I think Dodge and I were sort of having a bit of a chat about this when we were talking about the podcast, is that while we are very passionate about hunting and shooting, I still believe we're a very small minority in this country compared to other countries. Yeah, it all comes down to politics and demographics and percentage of firearm owners and hunters in Australia. It's relatively very small, but um, one of the best things to come out of COVID, I think, has been more of an awareness of you know, su- um, you know, supply chain issues. You know, when people were looking at the shelves and saying, "Oh, there's there's no red meat. The shelves are cleared out of red meat." Um, you know, you start getting a real lot of inquiries from friends and family saying, hey, how hard is it to get a gun license and get into this hunting thing? And I'm like... Just come to my freezer. Yeah, maybe if you've got enough to share, you know. Don't know um, how you shoot toilet paper. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, there was more of an awareness of that and it really did um, lift that sort of mask um, from society and, and kind of say like, hey, like that meat has to come from somewhere and if people can't work or people are sick or whatever, um, that supply chain is going to be disrupted and hey, if you've got access to, you know, a few acres somewhere or you, you live not too far from a forest because you live in a more rural area and you can go and get, you know, 10, 20 kilos of, of free range meat for the cost of a one or two dollar bullet, you are in a pretty good position. And even, you know, just looking at it from that perspective, not to mention the... Um, the like mental and, and physical health benefits of hunting um there there is more and more aware awareness of that now amongst people and, and that's fantastic i'd also love to see like you know i know like, I, I follow the states quite a bit and um i'd like to see what they do over there with their farmers and you know i know you talk to a lot of farmers and they've had bad experiences with people shooting and things like that but you know that's that's every it doesn't matter what you know look at rugby league there's people up or you know professional rugby league players always up on some sort of charge and things like that but i'd love to see that they use that as a as an income or some sort of service there that you can you can get people some some access that maybe not didn't have access and that's probably coming from my perspective that has never had access to private property i'd be happy to pay money i'd, I'd be more than happy to flick a farmer some cash to get out onto his property be able to grab some meat for, for me the, that whole experience knowing where my meat comes from helping them out that, that's a win-win in, in you know from, from my perspective and i think that's another lacking opportunity from you know f- from our society that would be great if something like that happens and i don't think it ever will let's be real yeah it's it's really challenging um and i think in australia the challenge is the the pest species thing as well because i know uh, like one of the properties that I sh- just started shooting on the last few months, the, the landowner um, wants the deer gone. He says, "Just shoot every deer you see." Okay, and I'm and I'm and, saying, and okay. how many deer on that place? 
Oh, well, you know, last 15. time I took a doe, you know, I saw five in the morning. But, yeah, it's not a huge property, so... And, and so yeah. what damage are they doing? Yeah. Um, not much. Depends how you look at it and depends on how you measure that. Yeah. Um, because I know if when you look at the way deer operate um, compared to, you know, native animals, the way they scale hillsides straight up and do cause a fair bit of erosion and, and that sort of stuff. They do start to cause issues. You know, around the rut, they start fighting through the fences and um, thrashing native vegetation and stuff like that. I think it depends to what degree you call it damage, but some people don't want them there. And as hunters, we want to be able to hunt next year and not just this year. Yeah. You get into a real issue of, you know, trying to find that right balance. And, and that's where a close conversation with your farmer is probably necessary and, and outline that and say, look, I appreciate you want them gone. Um, how about we set a quota and I'd still like to come back here and do this regularly. So, if, you know, we take four or five a year or, or whatever it is, let's reduce the numbers, but yeah, an open discussion. Again, oh, this you're never going to shoot them all. No, and, and they, they come and in if from you, the shoot, place. Exactly. You could shoot all the ones on that block and they're just going to come in from next door where the, the feed hasn't been grazed um, and, and you're going to have the same issue go on. And my issue personally is like I could shoot five deer in the morning some days. Do with it. But, man, I don't have you know, the whole weekend to go and get that meat packed out because I can't walk past the deer and not take meat off it. You need a cool room to hang it in. One, uh, one question I get is, you know, how, how can you be a hunter and love animals? That's a disconnect yeah, yeah. too. And, and non-hunters can't understand that without animals we can't hunt. So we, you know, by proxy love animals because we need them to hunt them. But the problem is when they're in plague proportions or, or just – and when I say that it's not, you know, kangaroos for instance – they are in plague proportions, not countrywide, but in certain areas. And that's where they're getting hunted. That's where they're getting shot. And we've done that to ourselves. A, a fellow I met many years ago explained to me, and this was in Africa, and he was, he was talking about elephants and the numbers of elephants. And people think, you know, not the uneducated, but they think that elephants are a dying breed. They're nearly extinct. Yeah, they are in, in some, some areas. areas. Yeah. But in other areas, they're in plague proportions. There's 10 or 20 of them rummaging through towns every night just trying to find an apple in some kid's bedroom and they're knocking houses down for it and they're the ones that are being targeted for hunting outfitters. So and the fact is that, like, you know, um, population around the world is growing. So more and more our human habitation is growing into those animals' habitats. So you're going to have more and more of those human-animal conflicts. And, and so th this guy's explanation for that and the reason why the numbers of all native animals across all countries has expanded is we've provided food and water in closer proximity than it used to be naturally so you know before there was a there was a natural creek and then it was 40 or 50 kilometers to the next natural creek an elephant could do that but some of the other animals wouldn't they couldn't travel that far without needing water in hot so they would survive around that creek what we've done is put water sources in every paddock so that elephant well sorry to say that deer can now travel five kilometers to the next water source and then five so each water source has its own herd of deer around it and they can all travel so what we've done is we've created environment that enables these animals to boom so true for kangaroos Kang uh, i believe i think they say that um there's now more kangaroos than there were uh, at the time of european colonization definitely and we've supported that we've created and more pasture and more so resources it's our responsibility to do something about that yeah yeah we need to manage that but it's that disconnect again that we're not people i don't think see us as being part of the the living ecosystem and we are we we yeah 
just because we now live in cities and, you know, we've got better tech and, you know, what we can do, we're still part of the ecosystem and we've still got to embrace that. And let, let's be honest, not everyone can be a hunter because then there'd be no animals left. Um, you know, so it's... I definitely don't want everyone think, to take up the sport. No, God, no. I if, think if there was one country that it could support large numbers of hunters, it would be Australia. Low population, big area, pretty big numbers of some species. But not everybody is going to do that. God, no, no. Coming back to what Dodge was saying about, you know, how can you love animals but also mm. hunt them? I feel like it's a, it's a big picture thing. You know, I hunt animals, but I would say I love nature. Like, you know, and, and Dodge, you know, my, my kids and my eldest um, is a real sort of gentle soul and we go um, walking in the bush and find animals and bugs and that sort of stuff and we're real careful not to step on them and, and go around them and that sort of stuff. And we have a real respect for nature and, and I really want to instill that in him. And But at the same time, you know, we, we kill animals for me and then he's been there when we've done that and he's okay with that. And, and how do you, you strike that balance? And I, I feel like it's that real sense of respecting and cherishing nature on the whole scale, uh, you know, um, on the big, big picture, the individual animals here and there. And that's a part of the natural process. And like you said, Matt, like realising that we're actually participants in the, the natural order of things rather than these outsiders and whether you're you're talking about the indigenous perspective of, of having hunted here um, going back thousands of years or whether you talk about um, you know the European perspective of um, you know you, you go back to cave paintings in France of them hunting um, deer and I think horses and, and that sort of stuff going back thousands of years it's it's in our DNA it is who we are and it's time that we recognize that you know we are still the human the same human beings that were walking this earth, you know, thousands of years ago, um, not much has changed. It's still in our DNA. It's it's still very much a part of us. It's it amazes me. It's like that polarization. You must hate animals because you shoot them, and it's like it's got nothing to do with that. Like I'm a massive animal lover, and you know I've, I've got just, plenty. I just like to say I like shooting cats, though. Yeah, and fair cool. Um, but you know, for me, and I'm the same. I'm happy to shoot cats, especially because I know the damage they do to our native you know, native wildlife and I'm a, I'm a massive fan of, of reptiles and things like that and I, I grew up looking after them. And Yeah, yeah, same. Like growing up, like my dad was a bird guy, love, is a bird, yeah. bird guy, loves birds, loves reptiles and that sort of stuff and to see the damage that 100%. cats do. The, it, it's crazy know. and I, you know, I appreciate people like cats and, and they're nice and friendly and you can pat them compared to like a, a six-foot lace monitor going around in the bush but um, each of those animals, they're beautiful for a reason and, you know, I, I think... I think hunters definitely get a big, uh, you know, a big bad rap that, as you said, it's probably been plenty of times you've sat out in the bush and you've been just observing an animal and just how they're interacting in nature, their calls, their, you know, what they're doing and it's not to shoot them. It's, you know, like I, I get super excited every time I come across a snake or, you know, if I, I find a goanna or, or something like that, just the patterns and the colours and what they're up to. So, you know, always a really tricky one for me when I talk to people and they go, well, you must hate animals because you shoot them. And it's like, it's got nothing to do with it. I love animals. I've got plenty of animals animals here you know on the property and like that doesn't you know why does there have to be that polarization and that disconnect of you killing animals so you hate animals like, I, I just don't understand it just like to say that i like cats do I, you have any no not yet we're looking for a cat if anyone one, out. we're gonna get one soon if anyone has any uh, small kittens available i won't be coming around anymore dodge i'm allergic to them okay i'm okay with no that. i 
Um, people who want to have cats, that's fine. Keep them inside. Yeah. Outside no, in I Australia. Think there's quite a few councils now picking up on that and saying, yeah. you know, they, they must be indoors and contained. I love it. You know what I compare it to? If you had a dog that was constantly getting out of your yard and running down the road and killing kangaroos, you would have a real problem with yeah. your neighbours and with the council. But people just accept that cats are free to roam and they kill a few birds and so what? Um, and it's just an attitude that is, is so wrong. But, you know, talking what you what we're saying about, like, um, you know, being immersed in nature... Since you've become a hunter, how much more aware of seasons are you? You feel like the the seasons changing, especially you know coming into autumn, starts cooling off, leaves are changing colour. You know, depending on where you are, you start hearing a few croaks from the fallow. It's all I do yeah. when I drive. Looking yeah. in the hills, yeah. looking in the mountains, looking in backyards, looking in the trees, looking in backyards. Chasey <laughs> <laughs> creep. <laughs> and it's not just and it's not just the animals either um you know for me um foraging wild mushrooms in in the forests um is a great experience and it's something that's really accessible with kids as well so to know that it's cooling off it's getting into autumn the deer are coming into season the rut's kicking off the mushrooms are coming up like it's, it's a magical time of year. it's my favorite time of year i love the color of the leaves i'm not gonna lie driving you know i live out here in camden and driving down the, the street and seeing all the reds and the yellows it it it's just so beautiful and it, it takes me back to my time in you know traveling around new york and and driving along there and you know again it's just a memory of being outside like i, I don't sit there and remember the the best day i had watching tv i, I do remember going for those drives yeah. and um you know please, like please just, come down to my place and rake up some red oh, and yellow leaves and take them home in a box it's um deciduous season in the southern highlands mate you haven't seen up the backyard there's plenty up there don't worry about that but um you know that's the, the you know the, those are the little things and yeah. for, uh, look, for me it's i want my kids to to, yes. to be viewing the world like that i think there's far too much and as a teacher um and you know uh, seeing young people and that are so connected to social media and on the phone and, and can't be able to, to not be connected to, to some random person they've never met through through an app or a message or, or whatnot. I don't want that for my kids. I want them to be out there in nature, as you said, noticing the, the different changing seasons, knowing what they are, knowing how that impacts the, the, the natural world. I think that's so important and just from a mental health perspective and just as a, as a person. You mentioned connecting with people and, again, touching on, like, that that's so important for me that I just can't drive without talking to people. Like, if I'm by myself, I'm talking to people. I'm always connected to people. And the majority of my friend circle is hunting-related. And that's only come about since I was, you know, 22 or so. Like, just the number of friends that I have that aren't hunting-related are few, are minimal. And... I think I is that because you actively seek hunters to befriend or you just convert all your friends into hunters? I, I saw that, you know, EOI that went out, you know, on the newspaper, need hunting friends. <laughs> well, either, either, I don't care. I have a fair few friends that I've converted into hunters. <laughs> yeah, well, there's a bit of that too, but, you know, you surround yourself with like-minded people, but it's just, uh, I mentioned to Kyle, like what other sport do you just randomly connect with a dude and go walking around in a forest in the middle of nowhere you know, with a firearm that could essentially end your life. And, like, so we'd never, you know, spent time with Matt much out in the bush before. You know, you're just trusting people. And that just comes from a, col- a common understanding of what we're doing it for. Um, everyone's safe. You know, accidents happen and things. But, you know, just 
being around like-minded people and trusting in each other is um, is something that just comes from this sport and this this lifestyle that I haven't found elsewhere. And how many times do you you meet a hunter and you feel an instant connection talking to them because you have similar values and similar experiences and, and we, similar worldview? Like um, you know, I was saying last week when I went out and did that sort of local meat run on a, on a new property, and um, I met the bloke who was taking me out. Never met the bloke before in my life. It was set up by a work colleague and I just met him and just hit it off straight away, you know, just standing around, leaning on the ute, having a chat and talking about deer and what we've done and just so many commonalities um, because of our shared experiences. You mentioned that the other week yourself. Like that's, you know, how our friendship grew. Um, you know, we've got common friends, friends that, you know, know each other. And then, you know, there's a few things we don't, you know, we're a bit different on, but our common morals and views as families is what sort of you know strengthens our friendship and that that came like not from hunting but definitely and not because of it but definitely it's a high involvement in the reason you know we are the way we are we have the same thought processes and the way we treat nature and and you know the way we raise our kids and things is separate but it just seems to align and um you know it's just i look forward to meeting more people in the community and just building that that group of friends I think that's probably a good spot to sort of wrap this episode up, isn't it? You know, just that's what brings us together as hunters and on this sort of common journey. It's the similarities but also differences. You know, Dodge, you talk about basically wanting to, to hunt anything that's sort of um, within reach and, and legal and financially yeah, possible and that sort of stuff. And I don't necessarily share all of those sort of motivations, but we cross over on many parts as well and... Um, that's just you know part of that that sort of pursuit and you, you're always moving forward as a hunter and always looking for new opportunities and new experiences and it's it's good to go back to the places that you you hunt a lot and um, you know you always have your sort of places that you can rely rely on to hopefully turn up in a year or something holes. but you know how good is it going to a new new place new property new forest and and think about well what's over that next ridge and what's down that next creek line and, and what are the possibilities and, and that's definitely something that's very, very human. I definitely agree with that and, and not only just, um, you know, new properties and new places but just the new people you meet along the way. Yeah, the, the that storytelling aspect and just shared experiences. I mean, humans, we're social animals. We're, we're meant to share experiences. and supposed to be part stories. of a tribe. Yes. I think, um, yeah, it's a great place to wrap it up. So, um, you know, I hope this has been you know, enjoyable for our listeners and um, we'll probably have a, a bit of an intro for, for people to talk about what where, where we plan this going forward and having – I think this part is really about how we get our listeners involved and I think it's – Yeah, how do we build important. that tribe? And we, we this isn't just about us. So where this podcast is heading is we are going to have a lot of um, a lot of fantastic guests and, and we're pretty lucky with, um, you know – some of the people we know and, and have access to as as a group and um, we want to go even further to that. We, we're going to have a lot of con- contact with the audience. So we want to hear from you. We want some questions and we're going to um, – we'll have in our intro where you can get into that. So we'll have those details of where you can contact us, how's the best – place to contact us how you can follow us um so because this is a different journey for us not just a hunting journey but it's a a journey into podcasting and we we want to take you guys along and we want you to be just as much a part of our journey as um you know as we are going through this so boys anything else to add on that 
No, I'm happy with that. It's been a it's been a good introduction um, tonight, and I appreciated the comments from everyone, and look forward to hearing some feedback from from the public, and let you be our guide. Uh, send send us some questions, and what do you want to know? What what do you want us yeah, to talk about? Yeah, anything that you sort of listened to on this first episode, sort of uh, pick your interest, and um, you know, would you like us to do an episode talking about you know this topic or that topic, international hunting, whistling foxes. Anything, um, but, uh, intro to hunting sort and, of thing. And if we don't know the answer, we'll sure do our best to find out or find someone that does. But just my main take-home comment for everyone is just get involved. If it involves, you know, asking a mate who's already in shooting, if it involves blind calling the local hunting club, ours is the Winter Caribbean Hunters and Anglers Club based the based down in the Southern Highlands. And my phone number's on the website. Give me a ring any time. Happy to talk about hunting any day. So, yeah. Yep. Yeah, thanks, guys. Right, thank you, and we look forward to you guys joining us in the future. If you have a question for the team, shoot us an email. Our email address is theendlesspursuitpodcast at gmail.com. Alternatively, jump on our social media, Facebook and Twitter. You can find us by using the at Hunting Journeys and Instagram. Find us on endless underscore pursuit underscore podcast. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time.